When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And again, what's your principle? The principle seems to be when choosing bad guys, if they oppose me, they're a bad guy, which mm-hmm. is okay, but you have to ex- understand that you're then a bad guy. And my, what I'm trying to do is, is determine who the bad guy is if I didn't know which side I was fighting what? for. Bienvenido. Vamos a hacer este. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Unsubscribe. I have a better Spanish accent than that. That was my fake fake Spanish accent, but I'll show it to you guys later. So this week I spent the whole time reading about leadership, reading about Eisenhower. Uh, Our patrons recommended Dwight Eisenhower. I had no opinion of Dwight Eisenhower, like just the most forgettable president. I would have skipped him in a list of of presidents of the 20th century, Uh, but people recommended a biography on him and I checked one out and he's the man, dude. Okay. To be fair, all biographies are gonna pump up probably the person that they're writing it about. But one of the things that I didn't know is that very shortly after Eisenhower, he was most of the 50s is when he was president for two terms. He was ranked by historians like the 30th best president, which is contemporary historians in the 50s. contemporary historians. Yeah. Meaning. And that was true for, I think, decades after, which is to say the worst president, because there were only like 30 X, 30 some odd presidents at that point. And today I went to Wikipedia and they have a conglomeration of all these different things. He is solidly four or five. Wow. Yeah. So he's he's. Uh, so what switched? Why would why did his peers think he sucked? And now we think he's great. So people thought that he just did nothing because he wasn't big and blustery, didn't give big speeches, didn't really react to the Soviet Union when they um, the U2 spy craft fell over in Siberia. They shot it down. He did not make big pronouncements. Uh, Senator McCarthy was in. If you guys have heard of McCarthyism, he was pointing the figure saying that communists are everywhere and Eisenhower never mentioned his name, not once. And so people got the impression that he just kind of laid back and things magically turned out good in the 50s without him contributing. Mm. And as they dug into like what he was saying behind the scenes and the plan, like this was very much planned. So the McCarthy thing, he's like, give him no air. The best thing for a senator is to have the president put his name in his mouth. Mm. So I will not speak that man's name. And that was part of his strategy. And he let him purposefully implode you know, on live television, basically, as they were doing hearings to to for some odd thing that I can't remember because I consumed the whole book in seven days. Uh, the U2 thing, he knew that Russia did not have the bombs that they were purporting to have. He knew that Sputnik was not a big deal. He knew all this, but this everyone else- This spy information that no one else had. Yes, and he couldn't leak it and he didn't say it. So he was telling people, look, it's okay, it's okay. But they, they assumed that he was underreacting. But in terms of leadership principles, uh, lots of interesting stuff, which is hard to do. He also was just very likely to give credit to other people. 
uh, he was he did not blame other people and gave all the credit to other people, mm. which meant that things went very well and he did not look good. Yeah. He was also. Well, I think that's easier to do in business than in politics. Yes. Like if you're Steve Ballmer, no one knows who you are, ever knows who Bill Gates is. Mm-hmm. Dude has 40 million yeah, dollars. Yeah. You're getting to yours. Me, to me, that's <laughs> ideal. You know what yeah. I mean? So in business, there's an incentive to just make things go well. Mm-hmm. But when you're president, your legacy is basically what you have, that and the state of the country you care about. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's even harder to just lay back. Yeah. There's not, you don't get $40 billion coming your way. And there was, there would be things that would happen, like I forget exactly what they were, but right in an election year, and, and I think it was the Suez Canal crisis where people were anticipating that the way he would respond to some particular international event would be dictated by the fact that he was up for re-election and it wasn't guaranteed. And again, it just is one one biographer, one historian, but he was such a man of integrity that he's like, right's right. doesn't matter if it's an election year. Like, yeah, yeah. can you imagine that? <laughs> you know, yeah, t- no, that's insane. <laughs> t- today, no, no one would do that. Uh, but so he had he, he didn't support allies in the Suez Canal crisis when he thought that they did something wrong, which was basically trying to we'd handed the Suez Canal over back to Egypt or in, or had Britain do that. And then they staged this coup where they were going to take it back. And he's like, we're not supporting that. That that's. That's wrong. Like mm. we we gave this to he, them. Was he a one term president? He was a two term president, oh, and he was solid, won. solidly two term. Yeah, he won very very solidly. Uh, the public the public liked him a lot. The other thing that a lot of people, including myself, he was supreme commander of the Allied invasion in Germany. So he was General Eisenhower, five star general. He was the one that made the go no go call on D Day. He oh, wow. had like m- one of the hardest decisions of the twentieth century on June fifth, I think nineteen forty four was. Do we go today or do there's like a three day window where they could do it and the weather wasn't certain. And it talks about how all these people are giving him different information. They're saying we can't do it. They're saying you cannot put these parrot, the uh, 101st Airborne. A huge part of the D-Day operation was we're going to land these paramilitary guys behind enemy lines. Mm-hmm. People are like this is never going to work. This has never been done. And he made calls that historians have since vindicated by being like, one, uh, the weather forecast, he got it. He got lucky, but he postponed one day. So he technically, he made the right call with the weather. They had a few hours mm-hmm. of like, we can land without these boats getting destroyed. And they said the pivotal thing, like 80% of the success, at least according to this one particular person, was uh, was dropping these, these paratroopers behind enemy lines, which many people instructed him not to do. Mm. And afterwards, in his correspondence with these people, what he made clear, he's like, if this goes bad, this is only on my head. You've all done your job in advising me. Uh, and if it goes well, it was the guys on the front line. And so people obviously gave him credit. He was general. He was he was uh, revered, especially during that period of time. Oh, yeah. But well, you get that letter. You love him. I he, mean, there's to some extent, there's public opinion that matters. But you also get in the military that Napoleon yeah. Bonaparte thing of just mm-hmm. like, who do the troops think is king? Do they think it's the king or do they think it's the general? And he, if you get that letter of like, if this goes bad, it's on me. If this goes well, it's on you. You love the guy. Yeah. So he did a couple of things that I that I'm trying to incorporate, and I don't do. I'm I'm not. I'm no Dwight Eisenhower. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, things that I'm just like trying to tease the principles out. Uh, when they sent the, I believe it was the paramilitary, the 101st Airborne. He stood on the runway till every single person left, which is to say, like he looked all the guys in the eye or many of them that he was potentially sending to their death. Yeah. Like he did not just sit at home. He was, uh, he looked at a potential failure and it, and its impact like squarely in the eye. He also wrote a letter in the event that it failed. 
that was saying this is solely my fault and just kept that letter on his person. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was like, this is 100% on me. Uh, my men, the, the men fought bravely. My advisors were were amazing. They did everything they could. Uh, and just- how, Does it talk about how he became like this? Like, what was his childhood like he, before, that made him this way? Grew up in Kansas, bunch of brothers, uh, Abilene, Kansas. You know, what's also interesting is like, his name is Eisenhower. He's like two generations removed from Germany, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. and so there's the, there's these fascinating things, and it's it's inspiring. Like that's what it is to be an American, to come from, to be two generations removed from this place, but to have uh, belief in a set of ideals that runs so much stronger than than that. I don't know, two generation removed familial thing and sure. the, that clan allegiance. Uh, so you're reading it, and then I can continue on and on, but uh, just in terms of things that I found interesting from a leadership perspective, like gave credit in a way that is really, really hard, I think, for me and many people to do. Accepted that extreme ownership, Jocko Willing stuff, yeah. in a way that is ridiculous. Like, how could you... And I'll, I'm, I then bought extreme ownership, but it's like, look, it was the weather. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, what was I supposed to do? Yeah, like, yeah. there was no, there was no chance. Um, so, I, so I did get extreme ownership, and I want to talk about that. But additionally, the parallels for today uh, made me feel a little bit better. So you've got Senator McCarthy with these, you know, everybody's a secret communist, which kind of feels like everybody's a secret racist, you know, mm. or everybody's everybody's harboring these these things. And we're trying to root out the person uh, and it's taking over this fervor in public life and the quieter, non-radical voices like Dwight Eisenhower, who was always about the middle way, like they're just not being heard with the same urgency. Yeah. Well, there's I think an, the problem is we don't have a presidential candidate who fits that description that you just said. There's not a leader that's doing that. But what there was at the time was there was this, uh, they didn't call it fake news, but there was, he, he thought that there was this reactionary uh, Sputnik flies over and it's the end of the world. Oh no, news. sorry. I agree that, I, I do think that the US populace is largely moderate, mm -hmm. quietly sane, like not made of people who are racist or who see racism everywhere. I think that's the majority of the populace. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying both of our candidates do not fit the Eisenhower description yeah, you just yeah, gave yeah. of like quiet, calm, not like they're both point that it's like you're a socialist, you're a racist, like you're a fascist. Yeah, they're yeah. both doing the McCarthy. We have yes. two McCarthy's running for president, right? Yes. Now. And I and I forget, but I I don't know how willing he was to to do the attack stuff. He was it was it was just an interesting Fascinating dude, but yeah, there, we we kind of lack that leadership. And the question is, how important is that leadership? Because when you get a leader like that, they say it's everybody else who did it anyway. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, well, according to the leader who seems to be really good, he he didn't even contribute. But is that just a trick? Yeah. That in well, order I literally to I was literally texting with a friend of mine who I really respect because he's he's quite smart and he's simultaneously very successful, but uh, he doesn't follow any party line. And I was like, who are you voting for? You know, because it's I think a lot of people are trying to figure that out. And he said, he's vo I'm voting for Biden because I don't like either of them. And I think Biden will just be hamstrung by a Republican um, uh, political just, system just and like nothing will happen. Yeah. And he's like, I think they're both they'd both be bad given absolute power. But you just put Biden in there and then like nothing happens for four years. Mm -hmm. And you hope that a better leader has come interesting come by by 2024. One of the things that I also thought was fascinating is so Brown versus Board of Education says that it is separate, but but unequal is unconstitutional. You must integrate the schools in mm. the South. So Little Rock drags their feet. He talks to the governor of Arkansas. He says, no, we're going to do it. We're going to integrate. We're going to integrate. They don't integrate. He's furious. But again, he's he's known for having this private temper 
hmm. that he like, and then quickly getting it under control and presenting a different public face. A so calm front. a calm front. Uh, and so people for a long time thought that they didn't know his his uh, sympathies with regards to race because he didn't really give rousing speeches about it. But mm. in this particular moment, he sent the 101st Airborne, the same group that was behind enemy lines at D-Day, into Little Rock to uh, protect the Little Rock Nine who were going to this high school and to be like, we're, you're, you can no longer segregate these schools. And let yeah, me be yeah. clear, this is not the National Guard. This is not the DHS. This is like a wartime uh unit this is like i think at the time like close equivalent would be seal team six in the sense that like you've heard their it's not just a random unit yeah, like yeah. you've heard so their name mm -hmm. you hold them in high esteem it would be the 101st airborne which is just like this is this is big these this is a combat unit in yeah. in wartime and it just reminded me of the, the cries of fascist in portland when there were DHS people arresting, and you can argue about what the, whether what their conduct was, but it was the simple fact that there were federal goons in a state. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating because it, it made it clear to me, one, your opinion of federal troops uh, is very likely to lack principle. It's very likely yeah, yeah. to just be like, do I like what they're enforcing or don't I like what they're enforcing? Uh, and so that that I thought was interesting. But his view was, this is a nation of laws. And the Supreme Court says that what you're doing is unconstitutional. And your police, your state uh, troopers, and your National Guard are not doing this. So it is the federal government's duty to enforce the laws, which I just thought was, was a fascinating take uh, because I, I imagine that a lot of the people that were very upset that Trump sent the DHS and to make arrests into Portland would have very much supported Eisenhower's use of the 101st Airborne to integrate. Force integration. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so it just made it clear to me that there's, uh, I think generally a lack of principled argumentation occurring in politics today. Oh, sure. You know, should we, should we, or should we not confirm Amy Coney Barrett? Well, you tell me who you voted for in 2016 and I'll tell you how you feel about election year, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> election year nominations. It's like all the arguments that are trotted out or many of the ones that I'm familiar with seem to completely lack principle and well, totally. My, see, what's funny is my only argument there is like, let's have a principle. Yes, let's say, just have like, a principle. You, well, and again, I don't know how far back it goes, but my only thing is like, if in 2016 we weren't allowed to have a Supreme Court justice nominated during an election year, then in 2020 we should just have the same principle. You know what I'm saying? Well, like, yes. And and to be clear, I don't know what the principle was in that year. And I've watched a bit of Stephen Crowder arguing that it's been done 27 times before, whatever. The then point should, then in 2016. Exactly. Exactly. What I'm saying, like, I don't know how far the history goes, mm -hmm. but either it's a mistake now or it was a mistake to not do it in 2016. But you just need to have a rule that says presidents in election years can or cannot. And yeah, that yeah. shouldn't change based on your party and the party of the president. You should just have a belief about the Supreme Court and how it's meant to operate in our country. Because mm -hmm. like when you don't do that, it's incredibly incendiary and divisive, and ultimately you will be unhappy because you'll you like think it's like when Obama started, I think, doing more executive orders than ever before, and the Democrats were all about it. Then Trump came in, now yeah. more executive <laughs> yeah. orders than ever before, and they're furious. And it's like yeah, yeah. this is why you have to think with principles because mm -hmm. you didn't set up a rule that you liked; you just liked the outcome at the time. Mm -hmm. So that's how I feel about the Supreme Court thing. It's like I don't care if we're allowed to do it in election year or not, but it just seems crazy to me that someone would argue you can't in 2016 or you can in 2016 yeah. and then switch sides in 2020. And if you rule a country like that, 
you are destined to have so many problems. Totally. And I think in terms of discourse, it makes it very tough to believe people when it, not everybody has been trained in logical argumentation, but you can sense when someone is always arguing for the Republican or Democrat standpoint or in your own country, whatever the two parties are. And it just makes you distrust everything they say. So when they come out with a very interesting novel piece of information, you're like, this is cherry picked yeah, yeah. nonsense that I don't need to listen to because I already know which team they well, play for. And I'll actually do I'll do a little bit. Of, I don't know if it's defending or maybe just a new angle, but we've talked about before, like not everyone is smart mm -hmm. and everyone, no matter how smart you are, largely believes what they heard a thousand times as a child. Mm -hmm. So you have a populace that on average is of average intelligence, which mm -hmm. means some people are below average. Mm -hmm. And then also all of us believe stuff that we were told growing up. And so it's like, yeah, we do not have a particularly philosophically sound voting yeah. base. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I just I was just looking at other things from Eisenhower. He's just fascinating. So he selected. Guess how many? I just showed you. <laughs> he selected five Supreme Court judges in his eight years. Five. <laughs> he decided which way the court went. But he made one. He was a Republican, a Democrat purposefully who became one of the like the longest sitting like staunchest democrat he people just wanted a, because he be wanted close. the credibility of the court to represent the people mm. and he's like look it's not five ninths republican you know it's like it, it, that's not what it is and so he purposely did that because he wanted it he he thought that it was very important that the court have credibility yeah with the american people i i I don't, I, I don't know if maybe it's just because this is the time that I grew up in and I wasn't alive then, but it, that seems so like no one would do that. You know what I mean? I don't know mm -hmm. if we've become stauncher in terms of how we identify or we've started to hate the other side more or what it is, but like that makes so much sense to me. But I feel like it would be almost unheard of for someone well, to do that. So, so I don't know, but I was looking at the uh, rankings of presidents on Wikipedia and they color it by quartile. And what you see is that there are like lone standouts, but oftentimes there are what historians have since deemed clusters together. Mm. So for many of the historians, they would say, and some argue, but like Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and even before Truman, FDR, like that was a solid, I don't know, but 20 plus year span of almost 30 years of like above average presidents. Do you think it's because... If, if there's a pendulum between the parties, like mm -hmm. each side kept it tight, so the next side kept it tight? No, it was, um, weirdly enough, the Republicans, Eisenhower could have run as a Democrat or a Republican. Nobody knew what his politics were. He was a general. And there had been 20 years of Democrats, including 12 of FDR, prior to that. So they hadn't won since like Harding or something. Wait, how were <laughs> 12 of FDR? He, he was a three-term president. Dude, it, it, U.S. history is fascinating. My teacher never taught me any yeah, of his yeah. cool stuff. So there was no rule that you could only do two terms. It was precedent sent by George Washington, and several presidents prior to FBTDR ran for three and lost. Oh, interesting. So FDR was – it was just a – it was like a wartime thing, and, and he uh, – according to historians, he's like the third best president. Now, some people, Republicans today, hate him, uh, but – he was he was popular enough to win hmm. um, and he was popular enough to kind of then Truman took over after him and Eisenhower was being courted by both Democrats and Republicans were like whoever this is this is the guy this who the won guy. World War Two yeah, yeah. <laughs> like whoever he, and runs he chose for. Republican just to be he chose Republican because he didn't want he thought the two party system was necessary and not not like oh it's better than having a, a first pass or 
I guess, I don't know if it's non-first-past-the-post, but he wasn't saying that the two-party system is better than a three- or four- or five-party system. He's saying it's better than a one-party system. Yes, he's saying that it's better than a one-party system. So he he was Republican because he thought that it was important that there was debate and disagreement. Hmm. And again, just like a very principled, high-integrity dude, at least according to this particular biographer, who happens to be an Eisenhower, but (laughs) 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 it's his granddaughter. (laughs) Um, But it it seems that many historians have since... uh, come around to this as well so just fascinating and i'm watching him and i and i'm i'm not like him you know i at apex legends if i lose it is not my fault it is <laughs> everyone else's fault like you didn't cover me i said you blew it <laughs> um but then so i picked up extreme ownership okay and i'm gonna read it but i have super misgivings about it obviously i just told you it's like it's everyone else's fault like yeah. you didn't shoot the guy <laughs> Um, so I'm curious, you know, you know, the basic underpinning of extreme ownership, right? Yeah, but I haven't read it. So Me I, neither. I don't have a good so, grasp. Of so it. there might be color to it. I've only read like the first chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's areas where I definitely disagree. For instance, they refer to uh, the insurgents repeatedly as bad guys. And I'm like, oh, man. Yeah. Have we talked so, about American Sniper? No. Okay. Well, Chris Kyle was in. I think he was in this particular unit. So, I, yeah, I mean, we can talk real quick just to kind of highlight what you're saying with the bad guys is that the movie American Sniper, American troops are in another country, our best sniper and the other guy, their country's best sniper are trying to take each other out because it's an asset for the other side. Okay. That's like my neutral explanation of it. We talked to a friend of ours who's, I think, very bright. And we're talking about how it's so weird that we're the protagonist in the movie, despite the fact that we're in their country. And he said, that's because that guy only killed bad guys. Mm -hmm. So that's why he's a hero. I said, well, who's defining them as bad guys i don't think that Mm -hmm. that country would define them Mm -hmm. as bad guys well not that country or that that group of people because he wasn't necessarily representing a nation at that point in time he was trying to create a new nation yeah yeah no i think it's just uh i'm i've kind of of the opinion that there aren't very many bad guys there are maybe are some but i think there's people who had different backgrounds as us and different experiences that led them to think that they're the good guys yeah and i think this is uh this is a only something that i can say sitting on a couch if i were on the ground in Ramadi or Fallujah, they have to be bad guys. They have to be. No, they have to be bad guys. That's the only way to survive the day mm-hmm. when someone is literally trying to kill you. And they are. They're trying to kill you, just like you're trying to kill them. Uh, so this is not meant as like well, sometimes personal are, failings. Sometimes of people there who, are stories that, that are the opposite of that, though. Mm-hmm. I forget when it was, but there was a time, I think World War II, that I want to say there was a French battalion trying to hold a hill and Christmas came and there had been fights all all back and forth mm-hmm. and somehow it got negotiated they would have a truce over christmas and it got held up which is insane to me because when i hear that i just oh go. no that happens frequently george yeah. washington was one of the first moa mofos who broke the christmas tradition yeah. by sailing across the delaware and murdering a bunch of drunk hessians like that was that was the most low blow like christmas I, was off man yeah, I mean, just for, just for, <laughs> for a few hours thinking about a war and how desperate yeah. you are to win i was like of course people are just gonna go in and murder you while you're partying but they didn't they like partied and then somehow like their music they basically started playing music for yeah. each other mm-hmm. and what happened was there so then i think the germans were got re, got reinforcement news and they're like we're gonna about to kill these guys this might be world war one and they leaked a um a note that was like hey, we're coming at this time. Hmm. Like, don't be there. And then they weren't there. And I thought that was a ridiculous story because it's the first time I really heard of two sides humanizing each other and being like, listen, I get you're fighting for your country because mm-hmm. you love your country. I'm fighting for mine because I love mine. 
but I don't necessarily think you're evil, but I will kill you if you're there. So tomorrow. Like, don't be there. Yeah, yeah, like I'm going to kill you at 10 a.m. tomorrow. So just don't be there. Yeah. I thought that was just a, an incredible thing that that's even possible. So we can, we can dive back into extreme ownership, but the whole bad guys thing is just it, clearly what defines a bad guy is they oppose the mission that, and this is the other thing that I struggle with with an extreme ownership, which is, I'm jumping around. He defines the most effective aspect of leadership or the most important aspect of leadership as effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Did you achieve the mission? And I understand that from a soldier's perspective, but from someone who has the luxury of being able to go one level higher and choose the mission, mm -hmm. the most effective, most important thing a leader can do is choose a worthy mission. Now, I get that when he's in Iraq, he's got to the, the the most important well, thing he can do is follow orders as best he can, keep his men safe and be effective in the execution. I think Jocko would argue that's someone's responsibility as yeah. a leader is to choose the mission. It's just not his as the head of SEAL team. Sure, but whatever. When, okay, so this is just one sentence in the early thing. He says, the number one thing that defines a good or a bad leader is if they're effective. And it's like, okay, the subduing of Iraq was effective. I think that was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's garbage leadership on the part of George W. Bush to take us into a country that we don't need yeah. to be in on false but pretenses. I'll, I'll try to- But he was effective. Well, I'll try to argue some leaders are responsible for choosing the mission mm -hmm. and then other leaders sure. are not. Totally. Now you could argue like maybe every leader has to push back on the mission, but you'd get an insanely ineffective machine at that mm -hmm. point, especially with the US military, like you just wouldn't be able to exist. Uh, 100%, 100%. So I, I imagine what Jock would say is like, Bush's job, <laughs> His most important job is to pick the right mission. But my job, if I'm on the ground as a SEAL team leader, I don't have that luxury. I just have to execute the mission for my guys or my country or whatever. I totally agree. I totally agree. I'm not um, saying that Jocko has it wrong. I'm saying that there's his perspective of leadership is coming from the someone who is operating in a military context. Got it. Yeah. And who You're is not a some leader has to own picking the right mission. Okay. So, uh, I work at Philip Morris. My guy tells me sell more cigarettes to kids. Mm -hmm. My job is not to be effective there as the leader of this division. It is to quit or find a different yeah, mission. Yeah, yeah. Like I agree with that personally. And, and uh, I understand how that is not a luxury that is afforded to people that are operating internally to the military. Mm -hmm. It was just one thing that made me go, okay, I have to keep in mind that this is a book written from a guy who is in the military, who views the insurgents as bad guys and who thinks that the most important measure of success as a leader is effectiveness, um, which isn't to say that he's wrong. It's just that's the context that he's, right, he's operating right in, in that context. Yes. Um, so anyway, and I would actually, this, I've listened to his podcast, would love to talk to him about the bad guy thing. I don't know how far we'd make it mm -hmm. <laughs> in that conversation because very quickly it'd be like, he's had awful, awful, awful experiences. And I don't know he seems really sharp. He might be able to tell you that it's just it's a nece it's necessary for you to have that mindset. I don't know that he would fight you on that. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I haven't turned a ton. Uh, maybe he thinks philosophically that the people in that army are just uh, yeah to a person different different at an integrity level. Yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised if what he said was there's no that they have to think I'm a bad guy and I have to mm -hmm. think they're a bad guy and it's not about who's right, but it's just about I'm their bad guy. Yeah, I'm their boogeyman and they're my boogeyman. Yeah, and yeah. we just agree to those terms when we go into combat. Mm -hmm. um, I Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm crazy. And he just thinks that those are actually subhumans compared to yeah, yeah. Uh, the good guys. But I wouldn't be surprised if he. Well, I think what he would point it. to is that they uh, they resorted like that perhaps in his experience. And uh, maybe we can just have the good fortune to talk to him someday that they yeah, resorted we, to roadside bombs, we et cetera. Put on the list. Yeah. But I'm, I'm then reminded of Washington. 
I'm reminded of oh, Washington yeah. crossing the Delaware and being like, that's what the underpowered force does when a foreign invader is in their country. If you love the founding fathers, you that's what Support they did. Terrorism. <laughs> Guerrilla warfare. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and again, what's your principle? The principle seems to be when choosing bad guys, if they oppose me, they're a bad guy, which mm. is okay, but you have to ex- understand that you're then a bad guy. And my what I'm trying to do is, is determine who the bad guy is if I didn't know which side I was fighting well, for. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm trying to give him the what I think would mm-hmm. be his best argument. And maybe yeah. he has an even better argument because he's sure. thought about this more than me. But if he came in and was like, they're my bad guy and I'm their bad guy because that's how war works. And then during times of peace, we're allies and we can be friends. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, okay. Like if you don't, as long as you don't think that there's something superior about a good guy and it's just a perspective thing. Like, I don't know. We, I, yeah, it'd be interesting to ask him though. Put, we'll put him on the list. Sure. We'll have him on. Sure. So that's, uh, anyway, there's the extreme ownership part. I haven't gotten to that aspect yet, but my understanding is that extreme ownership is that as the leader of any particular unit, you take full responsibility for the success of that mission. Mm-hmm. And there is no blaming, no excuses. I've seen him on a TED talk where, uh, he was at a mission, a number of things went wrong, and they lost a guy to friendly fire. They lost, I believe, an, an Iraqi uh, ally to, to friendly fire. Whose fault is it? And they went around and they said, it was me, it was me. He said, no, it's my fault. I didn't, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. And as I'm, I have to read the whole book to have a bit more nuanced approach, but it seems to me that that is probably more effective as a leader, but less true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's entirely possible in that particular situation that Jocko as a leader performed in the 98th percentile of what Mm -hmm. you would expect a person to do and that his team I'm not saying this is the case performed at the 70th percentile yeah and if you were if you were trying to assign uh just understanding like a scientist where did this go wrong Uh without without uh future consideration of how this would motivate people you'd be like oh it was it was the guy who yeah yeah uh, shot him when he shouldn't have shot him (laughs) like or question who picked the team and who assigned them their roles. Mm-hmm. Because I think potentially what you could argue is if I put, if I assemble a team and someone on that team does their job at an F, at some point I put them in that totally. position. So that's my fault because I, mm-hmm. that person shouldn't be in the organization or they should have a different role. Mm-hmm. So I, I can understand how it does trickle back in a world where you are in charge of the personnel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where, I, where I've landed tentatively, and I'll read the rest of the book to figure out, is that reading Eisenhower, reading a lot of these people, it seems like the effective way to run an organization is to take extreme ownership, full mm-hmm. responsibility, that that makes people inspired, loyal, it gets the best out of them. Even though in a scientific mm-hmm. assignment, statistical analysis of where blame might lie, which is impossible to do, of course, uh, it's not the most true. Yeah. Uh, well, t- I mean, to me, that just underscores if I'm going to have that principle, then then who you have under you becomes incredibly important if you're mm-hmm. going to take responsibility for all of their failings. You know what I mean? Of course. But let's say you say let's go an extreme example because it's extreme ownership. Uh, let's say that you're going into uh, this particular battle and you're doing good. And then all of a sudden a bomb is dropped on the city and everybody is blown up and you, for whatever reason, make it out my fault <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, it seemed yeah, yeah. like uh that seems completely out of your purview of sure. understanding you know what i mean i'd be i don't be curious we should have prepared for the contingency of, of i don't know <laughs> i would be genuinely curious to hear what he says yeah i'm sure yeah. he's thought of it sure um so but i i get how it's an effective tool hmm. for sure especially after reading how people respond to leaders who who 
have that sort of behavior. Yeah, yeah. Well, it reminds me of Tony Robbins to some degree, mm-hmm. which, and again, I don't even know that this is a good way to live, but he has, says when changing people, effective is more important than truth yep. to him. So like, let's say that you believe in wizards, right? Just down to the core of your being, you believe in wizards. He thinks you're insane, but he will talk to you as if he's 100% certain that wizards exist to try to get you over your phobia of snakes because that's what you hired him for. And just for. to make this concrete, he does this with religion. So if somebody is very, very... Well, he does it with anything. So what I see it most often is somebody is very religious. He'll be like, and they, their grandfather is dead. He'll be like, how would your grandfather looking down on you now react to the way that you are still smoking? And that'll make him break down mm-hmm. and be like, I have to do this for my granddad. And with somebody else, so like you're saying, who doesn't believe that, he just leaves that off. Like yeah. he doesn't care that that's true or false that grandpa is looking at you. He just cares that it motivates you. trying to get you. the change, which is to make you not suicidal or make you quit smoking or whatever it is. Yeah. So um, Jocko might also just be like, listen, it doesn't matter if the bomb's actually my fault. Like mm-hmm. what matters is that my guys know that I will make it my fault. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's, you know, I don't know, not Jocko, but yeah. he might just have the same Tony Robbins philosophy of like effectiveness actually is more important than honesty or yeah. truth or whatever. It seems like you need not need it seems like there's a value to both so for instance if the world is full of jocko's tony robbins who care primarily about effectiveness let's just take the argumentation of uh religion then because religion is a useful tool for motivating people to do the things that you can conceive of that you would like them to do you push religion Mm -hmm. and religion maintains a very popular thing and in this this world let's pretend that it's not the case that religion, that there are no angels, that there are no people looking down. What it then blocks you from is a goal that you couldn't anticipate, which is a deeper understanding of the universe and what actually is the case. Perhaps it's really Thor, God of Thunder, who is running sure, things sure. and you're well, missing no, out or, on- Or interestingly, how do you run an organization where you can't, like let's say you keep having mistakes, but like the COO keeps taking mm-hmm. the blame, even though COO is an incredible COO. Well, you have to now you have to fire the COO and bring in a less high quality leader so that you can get to the root of what the actual problem is. Because then this worse leader who gets less from the team will be like, no, it's John. It's John in production. He keeps breaking stuff. I do think there's so. room for firing and hiring as a response. Like responsibility, like I, I do think oh, that no, one of the that things. effective leader can do the yeah. firing. I'm saying if you manage the effective leader. Oh, and he's constantly never, telling you it's me, like, it's me, it's like, me, it's me. Let's say I'm the CEO, yep. CEO and my COO it's just is all about extreme it's ownership. It's my fault. And, but yeah. he, for whatever reason, won't fire the guy. I'm like, I have to fire you and get a worse person mm-hmm. who will get less from the team just so I can diagnose what's actually happening. <laughs> So I, that's where I could see it being, um, I guess it, it would need nuance. Mm-hmm. Having not read the book, I don't know, potentially all the nuances in there. Mm-hmm. But that's just the first thing that comes to mind for me managing a team. It's like, I would want to know what's actually happening. Well, this is the thing. But it, that's not being managed by the person. Yeah. That's when you're that's when you're higher up than the person. If it had rained on June 6th, Dwight Eisenhower might have had a completely different life. Oh, sure. Probably not president. You know what I mean? Like, sure. And that's... Was he less capable because it rained? Like if a cold front and a warp front had just hit at a slightly different angle on that particular day, all of a sudden his quality of leadership is terrible, shot, the war's over, the Nazis win, you know. Oh like, yeah, then it wouldn't matter. <laughs> then US president. Or just, just be, or let's say, let's say even that we did, let's Nazis. say let's say that we won the war and things basically unfolded and then he's never president because he was a bad leader and some other British guy had a couple breaks. It's it's are we really going to measure a person mm-hmm. 
based on those things. And I know we do. I was going to say, I, I think you we know, do. We do. We, we, and that was the criticism of him is that he was the luckiest guy ever. He, he got lucky with the weather. He got lucky in the 50s with a good economy. He yeah, got yeah. lucky with this. And some of it's true, but this book does make the good case that um, it, it wasn't just dumb luck. Mm. He was, his plan was to not say McCarthy's name. His plan was to cancel on the 5th and then go on the 6th. Sure. Like, but I guess life is at the end, it's a game of probabilities. And if you set things up such that there's a 90% chance of success and then it doesn't break your way, yeah, yeah. you're a loser. This is how I felt with my um, my Trump prediction, by the way, in 2016. <laughs> I was like, I'm not saying he's going to win back in March. I'm saying he's got better odds than the bookies are giving him. Yeah, yeah. And I've been overly vindicated because, quite frankly, close to the election, I thought that he was going to lose because the polls all said so. Uh, but because it broke that particular way, people think that I have a special insight yeah, into yeah. into president, presidential elections and candidates. And there was a lot of... Uh, I saw some things, but then it was at the end, it was a coin flip. You yeah. know, well, that's kind of what I feel about entrepreneurs when people ask me because, you know, our charisma on command is working out well. People ask me for advice. And one of the things you got to say is like, are you ready to do this for a couple of years and have a couple ideas not work? Mm -hmm. Because every successful entrepreneur I know is not on their first business. Yeah, that sounds crazy. And I'm sure there are people who are successful with their first business, but literally none of the ones I know. Um, so you just have to be ready to bet on your odds of success being higher than most or high enough, but then you're going to have to go fail a bunch. You yeah. know what I mean? Because I do think there's so much external involved in success of D-Day, the success of your business, whatever it is. Yeah. It's an iterated game. I think Naval Ravikant talks yep. about this, which is the goal is to increase your odds of success and play as many times yeah, yeah. <laughs> as you can squeeze into a life. Uh, and, and especially to maximize odds of success with things like D-Day, where it is pivotal and mm -hmm. quite frankly to avoid those moments as best you can such that's this is why entrepreneurship is so nice is yeah you don't ever have to have a d-day moment you could just fail 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 yeah, yeah. and then and have a breakthrough and, and then ride that uh it's yeah just interesting to to take responsibility for things that in in retrospect are so much out of your hands mm -hmm. and it, it's weirdly enough it seems this is why i would love to talk to him it seems to fly in the face of spiritual understandings which is like you didn't do any of this like you were you were thrown into this world at a random time and a random place and all your bluster about your planning and what you're able to do there's so many factors outside of your control to pretend that you're being influential is just ego um so it's interesting and i'd love that to have that conversation of is it ego to, to be like no it's my responsibility or is it a lack of ego to say to absorb the blame for other people i don't know mm. Uh, is that a, a trick of the ego at the end of the day? And, or does it even matter if there's guns shooting at you? Yeah, because that's kind of forget what I think. the ego, yeah, yeah. like, does it work? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you figure out the spirituality thing once you and your guys are. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah. I think that's probably true. Um, so, anyway, we, we got on a huge tangent. I know you brought some I stuff. I have a ton. I have a ton. So, speaking, let's keep on religion. I was thinking this. I was like, we've done politics, we've done yeah, dating. Yeah. Let's do religion. Okay. But I thought this was interesting. It's about politics, too. So, I have another friend who I also think is smart, but he's, uh, or and, He's a religious guy, and he said that he thinks Trump's going to win in a landslide. And I said, why? And he said he's never seen the evangelical uh, religious people in America so united behind a candidate. I said, why is that? Trump's not even religious. And he said that there is an opinion amongst some in the religious community that their religion has become hate speech, which I was really surprised by. So I said, what do you mean? And he said, you can't publicly say gay marriage is bad. Yeah. Now, I was like, okay, that's interesting because to them, 
their religion and their freedom of religion is being uh, and their freedom of speech, I guess, is all being impinged upon by the deci- decision that it's hate speech. Mm-hmm. But then I also wonder, why are you just picking that part of the Bible to be upset that you can't talk about? Because I think the Bible is also like pretty pro-slavery, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, that hasn't appeared to galvanize them to like try to bring official slavery back. Yeah. So I thought it was interesting. And I actually do believe him that he's seeing that amongst some parts of the community. And I, maybe that will be what wins it for Trump. But it was just such an interesting thing to uh, to inspire a voting block yeah. to think that, oh, my religion is hate speech. It's like, well, con- you've kind of been seeding ground on what part of your religion uh, religious it. text yeah. you're married to. Yeah. It's my impression, like along the way, like, there's certain things about like how you can treat your wife or certain things about how you can penalize people with the death penalty for certain things and slavery mm-hmm. being okay. It's, it when it's appropriate like, to stone someone. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking yeah. with the death penalty. It's like when it's okay to stone someone. So it seems like even if you're a religious Christian, the past thousand years has kind of been seeding or disowning parts of the Bible as interpretive or applicable to a period of time that's not today. Yeah, why not this one? But then holding on to this one is saying, I'm going to vote for Trump because right now me saying gay marriage is wrong is hate speech. And, yeah. and that was my thought, which I didn't press him on because we were just surfing at the yeah. time. So yeah. uh wasn't exactly focused on this 100%. But yeah, I thought it was interesting that that might galvanize a voting block. I think when you zoom out of history, this is going to be just like the, uh, the people who resisted, not just like, but um, emotionally like, and it will follow the same pattern of people who said who resisted the heliocentric model of yeah of the solar system. Uh, you're like, why are they holding on to this one? They held on to every piece of ground that has been since seeded sure. in the face of overwhelming social pressure. And I was going to say scientific evidence, but the truth is, if you look at how people know what they know. Not everybody was looking through the telescope, understanding the Kepler oh, orbits. No, it was just most of us think the solar system is revolves around the sun. That's why for it's no the solar good system, reason. To be clear, for no good reason. Experiments about <laughs> just because yeah. everyone else says so. Yeah. This is one of the things I, I with flat Earth and that I'm sure there are people out there that have firsthand who are listening right now, and you don't need to comment. I believe you that have done the experiment. Sure, you put stakes in the horizon. They put stakes in and watch it down. You've watched a ship sail over the thing. But where I live, there's buildings everywhere. There's there's no horizons, really, (laughs) where where I'm hanging out. I guess there's the ocean. Um, But most people that tease flat earthers have never confirmed through any sort of empirical evidence that the earth is, in fact, round. Uh, It is entirely plausible with the data that they've done and the research they've done that pilots are circling around (laughs) and tricking them. Now, that's that's kind of a silly thing. The the reason that I resist a lot of these uh, bigger conspiracies is because the amount of people that would need to be in on it. This is what I was just going to say. This is is why I don't do a lot of the science. (laughs) No, no, the flat earth argument to me, the way it falls flat is the fact that um, it would require so many people to be coordinated on it. Yeah, that that every pilot at some level would need to. It's hard to manage a team of ten people. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like <laughs> I get them not to talk. To to yeah. people leak stuff all the time. Yeah, in the NBA draft, you always know ahead of time who's getting drafted where. There's just there's it would be really really tough for an I'll, entire. I'll, st- I'll steal man it. That what they've done is effectively uh, they control a few key key points of information dissemination. So these leaks are happening, and these people could point to several pilots who could tell you yeah, the yeah. whole story. Go to this channel but that they're being choked out by the owner of YouTube, the owner of uh, Fox News. And so you're not able to get the information that is leaking constantly. That would be the the steel man of sure. that particular argument. But uh, I forget, oh, with regards to religion, the, the only point that I was making is um, that 
all of us who are so certain that the earth revolves around the sun really don't have good reason for no, that. No, I think the point you were saying is like people got put to death for saying the earth revolved around the sun. Mm-hmm. The now, I don't think we many, tease people. Now many, yeah. Not many religious people think that it's a uh, earth centric mm-hmm. solar system. Mm-hmm. You're kind of saying like this is just the next evolution of yeah, that yeah. where people in 100 years are going to be totally fine with saying gay marriage is okay. Christianity just, is incredibly resilient, man. Incredibly resilient. Well, the I Pope mean, just said gay marriage was okay. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Imagine, I mean, to be, to be, it's, it's an incredibly flexible doctrine and it doesn't look like that in the day to day, but if you zoom out and they've added addendums to the old Testament, they've got like, it's, it's religion is incredible. If you, if you look back and you just think, what are the, what are the most important people of the last 2000 years? You're probably not going to say any particular, uh, king or emperor you're going to say founders of religious sects mm-hmm. it's it's going to be your jesus's your muhammad's and your buddha's are the most influential important people that have lived in the last couple uh, and maybe maybe people have different opinions on this but they seem to inspire and influence people long 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 after their deaths but yeah i don't think i think religion is flexible i think this is a moment in time where it looks stubborn and rigid but if you zoom out this is going to go the way of yeah, yeah. the the earth centric just, view the, just might the help trump win yeah i don't know i don't know man it's so tough because then i look at these polls and i try to remember it's like this is total nonsense these oh yeah they said are, that they said that about hillary yeah these polls are these polls are ridiculous well so let's talk about polls i got a lot of stuff so i saw an article i thought was interesting i don't know enough about artificial intelligence to verify this i'm just going to tell you what the article said so the polls are wrong the u.s presidential race is a near dead heat because this artificial intelligence sentiment analysis tool says that uh, we are we are vastly overvaluing what people say in terms of who they'll vote for and not what they say on Twitter, ah, Facebook, and Instagram and how they say it, yeah. about different topics. Interesting. Which is to say, you might not come out on Facebook. Well, some people will come out on Facebook and say, I vote for Trump. But you might quietly uh, like a couple articles about how Black Lives Matter is bad. But when someone calls you and says, who are you going to vote for? You go, I don't know. But you're going to vote for Trump. And I actually know a lot of people quiet people on both sides who don't want to come out and say who they're going to vote for. So this AI thing is just saying, I'm just scraping people's activity on the internet. And this is basically a tie right now. And the the polls require mm -hmm. you to say out loud who you're going to vote for. And there's just shame around saying that you're Mm -hmm. going to vote for Trump. The most interesting implication of that is that the best predictor of votes is, I think we would broadly agree on this, is not who you say you're going to vote for to a pollster. There's probably better. No, you know, it's a pollster. It's not it's not like they're using bugs to tap you in your Mm -hmm. home. It's like someone calls you and they say, hey, I'm from this poll. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to tell me who you're going to vote for? And a lot of people just go, no. Well, there's also and there's selection bias. There's there's a lot of things that are sure certain polls want to have it a certain way. So, yeah, this is just this is just scraping Internet activity using AI. If it goes wrong again, what I will say is that I will block 538 from my <laughs> I, I'm serious. If, if if Trump wins this one and I get, OK, way we gave him a 15 percent chance. If he wins again, I will never go back to 538 because it is just putting nonsense into my head. Yeah, if yeah. if that's the case, because sure. uh, or that, I would say you should even do that if he loses a close one. If they're saying that he's going to lose in a landslide. Uh, well, they're not. They're saying that he's he's going to lose. They're saying the increased odds, he's at 80% or whatever to lose. So, well, yeah, who knows, man? It's, oh, it's, so it was interesting. Yeah. So, I guess, do you want to stick U.S. politics? Or do you want to stick freedom of sp- speech versus religion? Because I have, I have something on both. You All right. You've you been following choose. this Charlie Hebdo thing? A little bit. So, for people who don't know Charlie Hebdo, it's a satirical magazine they posted something at one point a cartoon 
It has uh, caricatures that insult Judaism, Christianity, and um, Islam because mm -hmm. it has Muhammad in it. Mm -hmm. P people were killed for that cartoon. Um, it was a big thing in France. So recently, a teacher showed it when teaching freedom of speech. He just he just was like, I'm talking about freedom of speech, doing a lecture. He said, hey, I'm just, you know, I'm going to show this Charlie Hedbo thing. Uh, if you get offended by images of Muhammad, you can leave now. But like, this seems like an important way to talk about freedom of speech. So I'm going to talk about it. A Muslim student left, I guess, told his father. Father posted it on a forum. The teacher was decapitated um, for showing the image. France is doubling down and projecting giant images of the image on their government buildings. Now. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. I didn't so, know that. So this is why I wanted to talk about wow. it. Everything else was kind of like, okay, whatever. So yeah, France. I had no idea. Yep. So France is putting projector, like huge skyscrapers, tiny skyscraper, but skyscraper-esque buildings. With the it. image. Uh, yeah. Good G gigantic. for them. 100 feet tall. Good for them. Um, and so it's a battle at this point between freedom of speech versus people's religious beliefs. And you see it in the comments everywhere yeah, yeah. that this is posted where people will say, you don't understand how blasphemous this is to my religion and how offensive this is. And other people, and they're saying, Freedom of religion and freedom of speech is to say that nothing your religion says yeah, yeah. can control someone else's behavior into what they have to do or can't do. Mm -hmm. Like you're not understanding. Like we know it's offensive. We're not saying it should be everywhere. But to say that it can't happen, what you're saying is that anyone's religion can have like authoritarian effects on what people can and can't do. What they're saying is you got the priority list wrong. They're saying yes. you put freedom of religion first and then freedom of speech second. Well, no, so no, 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 you have freedom of religion. No, no one's arguing against freedom no, of religion. No, no, no. They're no, saying sorry. your religion can't impact. You can do whatever you want for your religion, but you can't impact people yes. who don't believe I, I was talking religion. about. I was talking about the radical Islamists who think that you can kill people. They're, Got it. The baseline of theirs thing is freedom of religion. And my religion dictates that I should be free to kill someone who blasphemes against the prophet. Therefore, freedom well, of religion, fair, I and then I within that text, freedom of speech. I don't know why. I don't know that it says you have to kill people who blaspheme Muhammad. I'm, I'm, or if I'm not. Upset uh, to be, yes, this is not to to say that this is all of Islam. This is all of Muslims. This is to say that there is clearly a group of people yeah, within there. They think there. it's a big enough offense that they will kill you over it, yes. whether or not it's in the book. Yes, which I haven't read. Um, and it does. And it, as we discussed in our last thing, it almost doesn't matter what's <laughs> what's yeah, in yeah, the book because no, this is transforming over time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this if you're a Muslim, this is this is not any sort of shade on Muslim or Islam or anything like that. Um, but there's a group of people that that think freedom of religion is bedrock, and within that, freedom of speech. You know what I mean? To you can, it doesn't offend my religion. Yeah, you could talk about cars, and you could say that business is shady, and you could do whatever yep. you want. And and there's they're saying no, 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 sorry, you have it backwards. Freedom of speech is the bedrock, and yep. within that, you can say upsetting things about freedom, and you could practice well, religion shows and pray. You how and, foundational and how impactful separation of church and state is, or separation of religion and state is. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Um, because that's what this all rests on, is the idea that the government should be independent of all religion. Um, mm -hmm. Because to have it to have it be the other way where you can't show this cartoon, you have to say that the government is beholden to a religion. And what's interesting, because I saw the argument for this, in France it wouldn't be Islam. <laughs> yeah. So if you, like, if you want this policy where France is going to make governmental policy based on a religion, it's going to be whatever the most common religion is, and it's going to mean you, you if you don't follow this religion, you have to convert leave or be put to death mm -hmm. like that's what you're advocating for which mm -hmm. i thought was interesting just if you start with the principle of like the government is going to enact this is a principle thing based again. on religion yeah, yeah. it's not going to be the minority religion so everyone who's upset about this you would have to be deported or killed i don't really know exactly i do how it think works. i do think it's important to recognize that uh we we weirdly say that 
uh, we have separation of church and state. We do have a separation of the Catholic or the Christian church and state, but to say that the government of these countries doesn't have a religion is, is uh, I would just expand the term of the religion to be like the creation idea of how the world works, et cetera. And every person has this and right. carries this and every government has it implicitly. We have a, right now a scientific materialist view of how the world works. And in, and in that is that words and violence are different, but that is baked into the worldview that I have and that you yeah. have. And so to say, it's like, oh no, we're free from religion. It's like, no, you kind of have baked in assumptions that other people might, and I, these people are gonna freak out. I'm, I'm very much a relativist. Uh, now, we have to find a way to all work together <laughs> within this. And I think it's, these are, these are things which I, I like freedom of speech. And I think it's uh, forms the bedrock of how you can start to interact with people that might come from very different backgrounds. But it is not a given in this cosmos that words and violence are different because mm -hmm. if it hurts me and it upsets me and I feel feel so upset and enraged and I would prefer to have you chop off my hand than to see this image and that's that's how I interpret it, why are words not violence then to me? Now, I personally, just to be clear, I would argue against that position. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can take a stand against that. But I'm saying how do you reconcile two beliefs, systems that – do not even agree on the bedrock. So the only, I guess, I guess all that I'm saying is that the government is religious. You know what I mean? They have creation ideas about the universe that it says are true at the ex at the expense of others and well, ways that the people, world works. I think people would argue that there is a difference between religion versus science. And what you're saying is like it's all belief. You don't have the proof. What they're saying is like this is based on uh, evidence first, hypothesis testing. Mm -hmm. It's fundamentally different from believing something. Yeah. So, so we can. This is a larger. This is a larger, larger, and interesting that I want to prepare for epistemological discussion. But uh, science has been elevated to the the role of religion, which is it's yeah. just true. And I haven't read the books, and I believe it mm -hmm. because oh, and if you don't believe it, you're wrong. And my religion, science, is different than your. You know what I mean? And this is, and I know a few of the precepts. Why now? Let's put it this way. Even scientists, and I think Hume pointed this out, uh, evidence-based studies have no bearing on what will happen in the future. All that you can say is every time that I've hit the pool ball at this angle, it's made it go in that angle. But that does not say that it's going to continue to go in that angle in the future. So there's there's uh, a lot of things that even science recognizes as its own within within the constructs of or within the precepts of science, it recognizes as limitations that we just handle and deal with and try to incorporate and adjust to. Uh, but I think that there are there are strong limitations to it and it'd be really cool to talk to Leo from actualize.org uh, about this one. So we can add that one to the list. I know I mentioned it before. Let's save this conversation for a different thing so okay. I can prepare well, I'm better. Saying, sure. I'm just saying I think that the French government would argue there's a there's a core fundamental difference between any religion yeah. versus science. Saudi Arabia would argue that there is a core fundamental difference between Wahhabi <laughs> yeah, yeah. Islam. No, I'm, and, just telling, I'm just telling you what the argument would be for why yes. what you just said is not true. Yes. And I think if you zoom out and look at them, you'll find that it it has a religious flavor to it. And I want to talk. And if you disagree, we'll do a longer episode yeah, on yeah. it. I'll prepare sure. uh, a little bit better. But that's my. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, a rel I'm a relativist. So sure. I think it does have a religious flavor to it in the populace, but that it it were honest, if it's honest about what it is, then it is fundamentally different. I don't know if that made sense, but 
Like I think most people who believe science believe it in the way that people believe religion, mm -hmm. but that it should be fundamentally different if you had a world without incentives making things uh, sloppy or trying to pursue money. Well, it starts from, pre okay, we will do this longer, but it starts from the presupposition that there is an external world. It starts from a presupposition that what I'm experiencing right now is not an illusion or a thing. And I have no way to prove the bedrock of sure. that. And well, I'm making- Well, assumes that that illusion, that your illusion and my illusion follow the same sure. rules. Sure. Or, or mostly the same simulation rules. Simulation theory yeah. doesn't disprove science, in my opinion, because that's just, you're just saying the simulation has rules. With science, I mean, so we should talk about what science is. Science makes claims about how one can know things to be true. Mm -hmm. And it says you can, uh, you can come up with a hypothesis, test it, Try to break that hypothesis, and if you are unable to break it, that thing is tentatively held to be true Until and or real. Yes. Um, so technically, yes, within that simulation, but you could also have things. Well, I'll never be able to disprove the fact. Like I'm, I'm in this VR set of goggles. Nothing I can do within this particular universe allows me to yeah, take no, those no, goggles science, off. Science only works for fi figuring out how this mm -hmm. works. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, and this is where I'm going to lose people, is that it is. Uh, relative to states of consciousness, which is to say when you are on psychedelics, <laughs> the uh, conscious experience of the world, and, and if you're arguing with me while you're sober, we're missing the point. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. talk to me when you are high, when you are on ayahuasca and tell me about causality. Well, I will. I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> like, so, so it's uh, no matter what you think, so this this assumes an objective reality to yeah, some but degree. Again, but you're going, you're going to start with with fundamental assumptions. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So this assumes that it this assumes that this is the case. But if you do ayahuasca in a room of ten people, mm -hmm. we all see you lay on the ground, and you say, "I was flying mm -hmm. in the sky," and they say, "No, you were laying here with your eyes closed." The what science would say is that the reality was that you were laying here with your eyes closed. Yes, correct. And that your personal experience isn't as important as like collective experience. Totally, exactly. Exactly. Uh, it presumes that the that there is a fundamental objective world which is true, and we are in, we are subjective, independent observers of this world, and yes. we collectively come together to make claims about it yes. by comparing notes. Uh, that is an assumption about reality. Like, yeah, yeah. what if, what if reality is what if I experience and what you experienced are both true? What if what if uh, there is no objective thing? Now, this so again, I think what science's goal is to, and again, this, whether it's a simulation, whether your reality that you had uniquely to yourself is also mm -hmm. true. The goal of science is to understand our shared five senses yep. reality. It's to presume. It says, "Look, let's just pretend that these bullets are real. Let's this world is real. Yeah, yeah. And, and we might be a simulation, mm -hmm. but that's. But science isn't going to try to address what you experience when you're on ayahuasca. Yeah. And it's not going to try to address reality prime. Mm -hmm. Science is actually meant to do this collective reality that we experience, mm -hmm. even if it's one of three realities. Yes, but what it does is it takes on a flavor of, like religion, absolute truth that people are claiming. You're not doing science, you are wrong. And without uh, accounting for the ways in which the, your experience of the world is relative to uh, your, your uh, cognitive state, meaning are you high are you hallucinating which we again we call it a well, hallucination. I but yeah I don't, I don't think that that discredits science because science is it's more like what if the whole world had the same hallucination what would reality be called but as long as you're the only one having the hallucination or i'm the only one having the hallucination mm -hmm. that science has no it really has no opinion on that like that's just your experience sorry can you say that again yeah, yeah what you experience when you're on a different i don't even know what to call it reality because mm -hmm. you took a ayahuasca that doesn't 
prove or disprove or have anything to do with science is just meant to explain what's happening when we're all sober and together. Yes, but again, you're presuming that we are all sober and together. <laughs> like that imagines a world that you are separate from me and I am separate from you and we are all in a room sober together. And now we're like, we're describing that room, which no, to be clear. If, uh, let's say blood cells had the consciousness to have a conversation. They might have, a, they might have scientific rules about what happens in my veins that I don't understand. But if it were hypothetically the case that like, and this isn't the case, every red blood cell had to stay uh, an atom apart from each other. That's just how it works. If they touch, then I explode. That rule could be true even among cells, even if those cells don't realize that they're part of a body. So even if we are all part of universal consciousness, gravity can still exist within this. Within Yes, within some subdomain of that. That's what I'm saying. Sure, sure. And I think that's, yeah, I... I Science is clearly, I mean, I, I'm using it. I'm speaking to you. I'm, I'm, I'm engaging in dialogue in whatever this potential subdivision of larger consciousness is. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's the idea of relative, which is to say that something, this is what Einstein's part, one of his biggest breakthroughs was, is, to, is that uh, the rules of how things work are relative to certain parameters, mm -hmm. which is to say, if you're moving super fast at the speed of light, the size of things changes as you move mm -hmm. towards them and away from them. Time speeds up and slows down. So what you're doing is you say, yes, if we draw brackets around this experience of reality, within that, we're mostly having the same experience, right? Mm -hmm. But there's other things to which, uh, yeah, let's let's just come back to that okay. <laughs> tomorrow. I'm, right. I'm a little tired today, okay. and I'll prep I'll prep a little bit better. All right, <laughs> we got a, you got other stuff. I got other stuff. No, you got it. All you. So. I thought this was pretty cool. Whether you like him or not, Biden has a ton of his proposed policies on his website. I mm -hmm. actually couldn't find the equivalent for Trump. So if anyone listening can put him in the link uh, or put him in a comment because I'd love to see it. But you can go to Biden and just see exactly what he says his plan is. Now, maybe this will change for taxes and gun control and women in business and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I just thought that was that was nice to be able to go in and like see what he's actually reporting. Um and it's funny because from a tax perspective, he should win this 99% to 1%. Mm -hmm. Like he, if you understand marginal tax rates and things like that, and you're not getting disinformation, he is going to make, he's going to take money from people who make over 400 grand and he's going to take it from corporations. He's going to increase capital gains taxes and he's going to tax companies that hide their money abroad. Mm -hmm. That should be like landslide. Everyone's clamoring for it. Politics. Which is kind of interesting because it makes me think either people don't understand or they really just do not care about their financial well-being above other things in politics. I'll give you two alternative versions. So I do understand what you're saying. One is that the effect that that would have on the economy, and this is perhaps the more republic thing, would have downstream effects for everybody, mm -hmm. which would be negative. Um, the other is that the government, or the other is that I'm on my way to over four hundred thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah. You know, no, I, mean? I think like, that's a real. I like, think that's a real belief. Um, get out, get out of my way. You'll get there faster if you had this tax policy. Sure, uh, you'd have you'd have more money and more government stuff to get yourself to four hundred grand sooner. Sure, maybe. You know and I mean? I, and I'm not I'm not disagreeing with any particulars of the policy, but it's also unclear. This is something that I struggled with on a personal level that the government is still trying to figure out. Is I, I think I've mentioned this story before when my when we all went to Brazil. Mm -hmm. Uh, you went with a lot of savings. I went with very little savings. We had one friend who went with $2 million in his bank account. Yeah, yeah. And my brother went with my mom and dad's credit card. And if you charted the desperation that each of us felt, 
it tracked very closely to the innovation that, yeah, that yeah, each yeah. of us created yeah. in that period. Oh, one of the things I thought when reading this was I was like, I, I really, so the other thing is I've been listening to Coleman Hughes, which I'd never done before. Mm -hmm. So good, good recommendation for you. I think he's, or from you, I think he's really intelligent. Uh, I'm, I don't think we do welfare well in the U S in mm -hmm. terms of, I don't think that we help people get out of their situations. So mm -hmm. I, one of the things reading Biden's website made me think was, uh, maybe UBI makes more sense than what we're currently sure. doing because there's certain incentives where you, you can only get a certain thing. If you're a single mother, you can only get a certain thing. If you're a black entrepreneur, you can only get a certain thing. If you're a female, you can only get a certain thing. If you're whatever, instead of just being like, okay, let's just provide and like, let everyone kind of benefits because then you don't yeah. have weird incentives like staying single because you get more or benefits. not taking a job where you could move up but it pays as much money as you're earning from welfare so it's like what well, i will just stay home for yeah there's yeah, exactly there's like strange I'll, incentive if i take this job maybe in five years i can make more money but mm -hmm. right now i just have to work and make roughly the same so i just won't go so mm -hmm. i actually think the incentive structure is really bad um which made me think maybe ubi has more logic to it than i have uh heard a lot of people say, you know, I think mm -hmm. a lot of people just throw UBI out as crazy. Yeah. Um, but no, it's not, I'm not necessarily saying they do it well. I'm just saying people to me clearly don't care about money when it comes to politics was kind of my takeaway. Like they're much more interested. No, in no, I think it's, I, I, I don't think it's that they don't care about money. I think it's that they, they don't have clear understanding of policy implications uh, this is something that Bernie struggled with was, will you raise taxes? Yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, we're going to raise your taxes, but we're going to lower it. We're going to get your premiums yeah, down. Yeah. It's like that. Well, I said, <laughs> on Reddit. I was shocked by people who don't understand marginal tax rates. So like, I didn't realize this, but there's people who have turned down promotions because it was going to make their pay increase such that like, let's say they make 30 grand a year and they're taxed at, I'm making this up, 15%. And they're going to go to 40 grand a year, but get taxed at 22%. And they just go, oh, all of my 40 grand tax yeah, yeah. at 22% is less than 30 grand at 15%. I'd rather not get the pay raise because they don't understand that. I have a hard time believing that that's real, but I do. No, that no. Makes sense. I actually, I think it's 100% real. I think there's a lot of people who have never even heard of it. That's such because a shame. They, dude, that's not what they say. They say Biden's going to raise taxes to 53%. You're going to mm -hmm. take home less of your money. That's mm -hmm. like literally what they're marketing to mm -hmm. people. And so... Yeah, you have to actively ignore everyone who says that and then look into how marginal taxes actually work. Sure. And it's like, I get it. I find it totally believable that people just don't understand that it's always good to take the raise because your your increased taxes are only on your increased dollars. Yeah. Um, so which is your point. Like, yeah, maybe they do care about finance and just don't know understand what, what the policies what the implications are. are yeah. Um, I, I think that might be true. With the, the broader point that I think about as regards welfare with my brothers, we watched him, you know, have mom and dad's credit card, not do much with it. Uh, we, we started a business, the guy with $2 million did nothing, like literally yeah. slept until 6 PM. Most days, the guys that had a little bit of money, they, they since created business businesses. Uh, my brother, then when we left, had to go get jobs that he hated in Las Vegas when the credit card was taken from him. And he was, uh, yeah, he had jobs that he didn't want to have. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, a, a he was like a bus incentive. boy picking up cups at, at clubs, no, dealing with jerks. Like, uh, and what had happened was for him, there was the year in Brazil of fun, a year and a half in Vegas of not fun, and then like six months of really trying, fiddling this business, not getting it. And then finally, he broke through after probably two-ish years in Vegas where his, his side hustle overtook what he could make from... Uh, picking up cups and being a and being a busboy and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff and he he now does that 
And so what I struggle to, to think about is how much support is appropriate because clearly my brother when he was three needed everything from my parents. Mm -hmm. And when he was 18, he benefited and maybe he benefits from free college education or maybe like I don't know where it turns from destructive to uh, to give someone more stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know where I where I land on most welfare. I don't know where I land on many policies, but I know that there is absolutely a moment in time. This is why I give a lot of money to Charity Water, where it's like if you don't have this, you need yeah. If you're a kid and yeah, you can't drink water without you need getting a water, mouth you need food, you yeah. need you need to be taken care of. Um, and I think there's even supports when you get older. It's like dude, you need mental health support. You mm -hmm. need all of these things, but. At some point, it's very evident to me that that becomes counterproductive. Yeah. And I'm not sure where in our society that is the case. Uh, I suspect that the number one thing you could do is around the basics of life and then education. But I think, yeah, safety and education mm -hmm. and food. But then the problem with education, which I experienced in college, is when you subsidize something, it disconnects from the marketplace, which is to say, but when when oh i was sorry i was thinking like elementary school education i was thinking the fact that mm. people go to sixth grade and it's well, a is, dangerous walk or they can't yeah, they yeah, have yeah. to go to get jobs because you know they have to support younger siblings i wasn't thinking that college should be free i was thinking just like everyone should have a pretty solid k through 12 experience well even that i think the criticism i have is when you subsidize something it becomes disconnected from the marketplace not that it needs a hundred percent of the time to be connected but i mean we wrote cursive up through fourth grade we were working on cursive. Mm -hmm. it's like you couldn't have there was there was a computer in the class but it was only for video games and and playing when you were mm -hmm. a good kid uh it it loses its its connection with the world and you and you're now you're teaching something that was useful 30 years ago sure you can't use your calculator on the test. What are you going to have a calculator in your pocket? You know what I mean? Sure, like, sure. Uh, people, everybody in Silicon Valley would have said yes, yes, you absolutely will. Yeah. But it it's it loses its connection. So uh, it's just sticky. It's it's a very difficult thing to to know what to subsidize, how to subsidize it, how to pay for it. I'm not saying we should take away public education. By the way, K through 12, I might even be for it in college, but it's tough to keep it incentivized. Uh, such that people are still connecting to a world that has economic demands on them mm -hmm. um, and that is technologically evolving and isn't just in this, oh, you know, money comes in every year, so we'll just teach the same curriculum that we have for the last decade. Sure. So I don't know. I shouldn't be president. <laughs> we won't vote for you. <laughs> we won't vote for you. This is going to bite you in the ass when you run in 20 years. <laughs> no, you he see what said, he said? He said he shouldn't be president. <laughs> he said it right here. I'll tell you what, man, reading all these Dwight Eisenhower things, it is a thankless job. Sure. and and. And one of the other, Jeff Bezos is more powerful, in my opinion. And it's not because any given year he's more powerful. It's because he gets to run Amazon for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And as Barack Obama saw, you can work and struggle and try to get everything and get your medic, your bill passed about healthcare, And then it can just be taken away by the next dude. Sure. So uh, it did make me go, OK, if you want to really help presidents, it's a solid job. But man, it is not the best. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you could be owner of something and have a long-term vision, it seems. So I guess go run for president of China, maybe. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> then you can be Putin, or, or Russia. Putin been in power, uh, dude. He's a been long winning, time. He's been winning democratic elections for <laughs> twenty plus years. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, he's just just got more approval from the populace, I guess. He's got. A, he might actually. He might have that mandate. Uh, you I I see, and I'm not. I think the two term limit makes a lot of sense. But I saw the value of having a cohesive plan when I was reading these books and how things. And then Nixon comes along and 
you know. Well, this is what I just don't know the answer to. It's like, was our government more cohesive before and now it's super divisive and the sides, opposite sides hate each other? Or did the opposite sides just always hate each other? This is what was nice about reading McCarthy. I mean, yeah, the, the, there was, there's been political opportunism and uh, people's basic, under, our basic wiring of being attracted to insults and criticism, I don't think has, has transformed much. What has transformed is the amount that you can receive, how frequently you can receive it, mm. uh, the subdivisions that you can receive it in, meaning that instead of all of us watching Walter Cronkite and having the same basic facts to work from, you can get a completely different fact set from me. Yeah, yeah. And then I realized that uh, Henry, my brother, was listening to Instagram and it was Shark Tank. Because I, I was like, Henry, you don't watch Shark Tank. But what it was was the 22 or minute episode condensed into probably three minutes of just like none of the walk-ins, none yeah, of the cuts, yeah, yeah, talk, yeah. talk, 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 talk. It was a better product. Yeah. And I was like, man, this is what it's, they're just squeezing. Everything is sure. getting uh, choked down to the smallest unit that it can be consumed in because people have no attention yeah, yeah. <laughs> anymore except for podcasts. Yeah. When's the next presidential debate? Are we going to live stream I think it's today. reaction to it? Today. Do, do you want to do that or no? No, I'm tired. I'm taking a nap. I'm taking a nap tonight. <laughs> we'll what else you got? Eventually. What's that? We'll get it eventually. Yeah, four years from now. Uh, you want to talk about the Karen Act? I know it's something you brought up in private. If not, I got plenty of We can talk stuff. about it if you want. I was, I, I was disturbed I, I don't by really that. have anything else. So, yeah, I don't have much to say about it, but I just know it was something you brought up. So I don't know a ton about it. I just, is literally a Reddit headline. So, so if I speak out of turn on this one, I apologize in advance. Yeah. Uh, normally I, I do more. Well, I read about it. I can try to correct if I hear okay. anything. So this is in a San Francisco Karen, it's C-A-R-E-N, uh, which is definitely reverse engineered to be the Karen with a C. Yeah, which I think is a huge mistake because it just makes it less credible yes. in my mind. Uh, well, you based it on a meme. Yes. Like, and it's uh, legislation to further punish or block people who called 911 and first responders uh, purely based on race things. Yeah, race or is, racial discrimination. So you yes. see a black guy at a barbecue and you call the cops and you make up that he's causing a ruckus, but he's yeah. not. Now you're in violation of the Karen Act. So one, we already have laws on the books mm -hmm. that say that you can't make false calls to first responders. And I don't know what those ones are called. I imagine they don't have sexy names and they're not very memeable. Mm -hmm. But uh, my impression is that this is not filling in a gap in, in our legal system I, I tried to figure this out because it is already illegal to make a false 911 claim mm -hmm. i think what this adds is um that you can sue the caller got it i think what this does is it's not a federal thing necessarily but it just Civil. gives you something to violate mm -hmm. so that the caller can sue you based on damages sure and what i think that means is if the cops show up and are polite and just go hey man we got a call that said you're making a ruckus and you go no sure wasn't and they leave there's probably not a lot of damages, so you huh. actually can't sue. The Karen Act won't do anything for you. But if it comes in and all of a sudden there's you can something, sue first per, something yeah. traumatic happens, damage happens, your kids are traumatized, something like it's a, I believe, meant to enable repercussions on the caller. Sure. So my, my argument is not with the policy because I don't understand the policy. What I really was disturbed by was the title of it. Um, I kind of agree. It's like, I don't, this might be perfect legislation. I don't know. I'm not on, I don't know how big of a problem this is or, or if the civil suit is a good way to deal with it. Uh, it's just it like, it seems pet. It, it goes, it becomes something that seems petty to me if you call it the Karen Act. It, it seems, seems like, like grandstanding to, at some point. Like you, you are trying to, 
you found that there's a moment in time in 2020 where there's a reviled class of white women who are being uh, put into videos and they're funny and funny to watch. I love them. I love like Karen's Gone Wild. They're they're super fun videos. <laughs> Never heard uh, of this. Yeah, they're great. But uh, for legislation to be to be doing that just goes, oh my God, like I, this is disturbing. Yeah, that, no, for me, I actually, I read it. I was like, it seems fine. Seems like it mostly just allows people to sue yeah. civilly. I couldn't really find anything. Which which might be a totally appropriate criminally. piece of policy. Yeah. I think it would have been much better if it just had Act a name C- that wasn't. C-1425. Yeah. yeah. No, to me, I went, immediately I went, you're not trying to just fix a problem, you're, but you're trying to make yeah. a statement mm-hmm. or take a dig or whatever it was. And that was my whole takeaway. I was like, that's, that's increasingly, I might support this, but yeah. it just seems like it was motivated by petty people. So the reason, and I, I don't know, I can't read their minds. I can only intuit based on some of the things that I've read, but this, we, you and I have talked about, and maybe we'll one day make our video about if we're going to leave California, it will be for this reason. If we leave, um, it's really not, we've, we've been comfortable paying 13% taxes. I moved here when it was 13%. Yeah, we were just like, look, it's sunny here. Yeah, it's, 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 it's nice. And I like, I love the honest, the people that I meet and interact with are, I like a lot. We're in Santa Monica. Yes. So we got a different, different type of yeah, people. Very around, like they're, fitness, they're conscious health, yeah. uh, beachy. Uh, I, I love it. But the, the, uh, virtue signaling of the government is, really disturbing mm-hmm. to to me and it seems like a lot of the laws and we've talked about these do not and may, maybe the policy guts of this one are nice don't know can't comment but certainly there's something else going on when you name it and i wonder how much that infects policies mm-hmm. and we've talked about quotas in the past which is like are you solving a problem or are you grandstanding and creating yeah. more problems and no. that's that's typically that's not typically increasingly my impression of the of more of what I'm seeing come out of the California state legislature is that it is uh, not solving problems and instead meant to signal. Yeah, ones. it's weird. It's like virtue signal policy. Yeah. Uh, so if we move, it really like well, I'll move to a state with with low taxes because what you know, I'm happy to to take well, if you're also, the 13%. If you're going to leave, you're gonna leave <laughs> yeah. the weather and the beach, I, it's funny to me. So many of the cities seem so similar. Yeah. Once you remove. Southern California. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, t- I'll, I'll take that that refund. But I would have stayed here for in perpetuity. Uh, and if I don't, it will be truly just because of stuff like this mm-hmm. that I see coming out of California at an increasing rate. Um, if they told me, hey, we're going to raise taxes. It's going to go to 14%, but it's going to, you know, 15%, but it's going to stay there. I'd be like, I'll do the math. Sunshine, really nice <laughs> here. I'll, and, I, and I don't really care that much. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I this stuff is it's just... Uh, just makes me think I need to leave because I'm like, who's running this shit? Yeah. <laughs> like who the heck is in charge? And this is San Francisco, but there's analogous things that I see for the state of California. Yeah, no, I mean, to to your point about are you solving a problem or like what's what's motivating you? I saw in the New York Times, it's just an article. It's just written by a person. So this doesn't represent them. It just represents whoever wrote it. But the, the title was, oh, let me get it, to make orchestras more diverse and blind auditions. So they're saying like if you want to get more people of different oh you have to purposely pick them so so <laughs> so, so, the, so just for people who don't know oh orchestras originally they were they were accused of being racist and sexist because you'd come in for an audition they would see you mm-hmm. and they would perceive your music differently if you were a white man holding the instrument if you're an Asian man holding the instrument if you're a black woman holding the instrument so the solution which I think is elegant is they don't know your name. And they don't know what you look like. You, you come, like behind, behind, a curtain, you come yeah. behind a curtain. It's a blind audition. They hear you. They score you. 
Yeah. And that's it. They literally have no idea who you are except for the music you create. This person was arguing that has not led to enough diversity. So instead of doing what Justin, I think, cleverly would suggest, such as figuring out are six-year-olds in diverse communities getting access to instruments? Do they have good music teachers? Yeah. Why is it, if this is the case, that maybe the people auditioning aren't, uh, they they don't, it's not 13% black at the audition part. Like, let's figure out why. They just go, oh, we want to have well, to more. To be clear, I'm willing to bet that it's overrepresented uh, in the string section with an Asian population based on. Oh, for sure. <laughs> just based on my, what <laughs> i But that's not the diversity that counts? I just think it seems weird to add racist policies to an area that seems so well positioned to yeah. be exactly what you want, which is people. So you are using the word, and this is what I've learned. You are using the word racist differently than they do. When yeah. you said racist, what you said is to make a judgment of someone based about their skin color when that doesn't need to enter into the situation at all. What they think racist is, is anything that does not uh, include a representative portion of the U.S. population or above. Above is okay <laughs> uh, for for particularly the black community, but it also sometimes includes Latin, Asian, but often it, it often excludes the Asian oh, community. Oh, yeah. Well, they, and just to be clear, this is just one person writing for the New York Times. So, But I just yes. thought it was interesting because it's like the blind audition to me is so such an elegant solution. And when people say that there's racism in resume uh, selection, my proposed solution would be Blind resumes, just, as, get, just as get, much as possible. Yeah. Just get rid of the no name. name. Yeah, yeah. Just show, just so the college they went to, the job experience they had. Let them write out their own. You, I mean, you can literally see how good someone is at marketing and writing just by looking at their resume and how they position what they've done. Just get rid of their name, and you could even get rid of where. Just say, hey, listen, no one's allowed to put what city they're from. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you're from Detroit or Alabama. Just get rid of it. Like blind resumes seem great. And so I just thought it was interesting that somebody was going to get rid of the blind audition, which to me is like the epitome of not racist to them and, and this is the this is the disagreement this again we will try to get coleman hughes he can he can articulate this better than i can racist is you, you are not using the term you're using racist that is traditionally been used it is it is morphed i know um in what it is so just thought it was interesting because to me i was like this is exactly what you okay. want you want people's race to matter exactly as much as their eye color and their mm -hmm. hair color which is not at all. <laughs> like yeah. maybe for dating, if you only date people with brown eyes or something. Yep. Um, um, it's like this is the one area we've really nailed it, and so it's just interesting to see someone attack that area. As I wonder, being, and I wonder to what degree that's just for clicks or like. A, a I think survey. I don't even think it's for clicks. I think it's just one guy is the thing. But mm -hmm. like, I do think that if there's one guy, there's more than one guy. Maybe. Um, yeah. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Where is that coming out of? New York? New York Times. <laughs> yeah, this is like, okay, let me just think what cities I'll be going to. Like, <laughs> this is this is unfortunate. I just, I'll go anywhere. You just tell me where this this stuff is not going to be. It's like, I'll move to a crappier place. I'll like, yeah, I'll yeah. leave a bunch. I'll, I'll be, I'll pay an exit tax. Just like charge me for whatever it is. And then do not bring this. <laughs> do, do not ever bring this there. Just promise me yeah, that yeah. this doesn't come there. Well, that's what they're saying. That's what Texas and Nashville and Florida and everyone yeah. say. Please don't, like, if you flee here, please don't <laughs> bring your policies here. Yeah. And again, I'm not anti, uh, I, I don't mind being taxed as a high earner to pay for, uh, especially oh, no, to that's pay not, for government I don't think policy. That's the policies that people are saying. Sure. Not but I'm saying that that's a policy that I'm not necessarily running from. Like, I, I, I'm not anti that policy. No, like I said, there's a lot of stuff on Joe Biden's <laughs> website I disagreed with, but I liked the tax policy and I'm not necessarily going to benefit from it. Mm -hmm. But I'm just okay with wealth redistribution. 
until you look into like where it goes. Let's do this real quick. I So you mentioned this. You and I have been looking because you. I watched a video of Robert Kiyosaki and he talks, I think, accurately about the way that the U.S. tax system is currently set up. Mm -hmm. And on he's got a little chart and on the left side, he's got employees and small business owners. And yep. on the right side, he's got large businesses and investors. And he accurately points out the U.S. system will tax you at a higher rate if you are an employee or a small business owner than it will if you are a large business or an investor mm -hmm. because of the capital gains provision. Mm -hmm. Now, we can argue if it's good, bad, otherwise, it, for the purposes of this conversation, it doesn't matter. The only point is that you get taxed at like 15% or under Trump, and it's traditionally been around 20, versus uh, anywhere, if you're in California, it's 53% for your upper tax bracket. So Yeah, federal plus state combined. Two to three times more. Yeah. Uh, and when you're making money as an investor, now there are pensions and all this, but there's a lot of people making a lot, a lot of money at that 15% rate. So you and I just watching this, I was like, man, I feel like I, I feel like a sucker. We are suckers. Yes. Yeah. I feel like stupid. So we've been looking into, okay, like, should we do real estate more? And I'm not interested in real estate. I don't want to buy and flip and sell homes. I, yeah. Like, I don't, I don't want to learn about the stock market. I like to, to create things more tangibly mm -hmm. and so but we've been looking into it because like look we're just <laughs> we're getting, yeah, we're just some, we're, we're just the dumbest the, people we're just here. one of the big suckers <laughs> right now in the tax game uh and i would love it if joe biden or anyone made it like a little bit less stupid for me to create to things just make a business to just make a business, that, business. that earned income yeah. yeah uh so i'm i'm for uh tightening up the the gap between cap gains and mm -hmm. uh Income. Now, I will say I don't have a total understanding of how that might affect investment. You know, you want to encourage people to put when they have hordes of money, you want them to put it back in. But it seems to me that like what is 15 percent encouraging much more investment than 20 is like, could it be 30? Could it be 35 as opposed to the 53 that California is? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm. No, no, I thought that was one of the things I like. Like I said, there's a bunch of stuff that I didn't like, but I liked his his tax stuff. I got a bunch more, but I'll, well, I'll only do one more. I'll save the rest for later. So All I'm right. I'll let you pick. Do you want to talk about how being a man has changed because it's 2020? Or do you want to talk about video game shaming? I feel like we've done both of these. Which is the most different? Uh, well, this was just a Sneeko thing. So I'll talk about this. Uh, you know Sneeko, the YouTuber? Mm -hmm. She tells a story. He's in Harlem. And he was talking to some guy. And he mentioned that he was a YouTuber. So then he, he was having sex with his girlfriend. With the, Wait, Who's he? Sorry, Sneeko. Okay. He's so, having okay. sex with his girlfriend. Weird. You just changed scenes really fast. He was Listen, talking to this guy. You. He's a YouTuber. Keep His up, Chuck. <laughs> Keep up. Okay. Uh, okay. So Sneeko tells a stranger that he meets in the neighborhood. Here's, but they start talking. He goes, yeah, I'm a YouTube guy. Then Sneeko is in his apartment having sex with his girlfriend and his blinds are open. And he sees the guy recording him what? having sex. And he goes, I don't know what this is about. Maybe this is to extort me. Maybe he doesn't know that I'm not that famous. He wants to sell this to TMZ. Very stupidly. He uh, and he says it's stupid. He throws a bottle at the guy's window or something because he's just angry and he feels violated. This guy's recorded him. So then the guy comes over and they get into a shouting match. And basically he's like, I want to fight you. I want to beat the shit out of you. And Sneeko's like, you illegally recorded me having sex. And so now as a man, is that me, illegal? I think so. Can you not point a camera at somebody's open window? I don't know. Let's call it legal. Let's say it's legal. I would say illegal. I'm pretty sure it's illegal. That's illegal. It's private property. I can't point a camera at a window. 
Not if it's looking into somebody's um, home. Interesting. I'm that's surprising, but okay. I don't know the rules, but that's actually uh, luckily that's not an important part okay. of the discussion. So he basically says he's like, I have a now I'm in a spot. My my girlfriend's there. My ego wants to fight this guy uh, because he's challenging me as a man. If I back down, I feel like a failure as a man. If I fight the guy, I could get hurt or killed, thus not being able to support people financially. And also I'd be dead. Uh, I could beat the guy up. Let's say I win the fight. Now I get into legal trouble. Mm-hmm. I could call the cops, but now I'm a snitch because I live in Harlem and the neighborhood will turn on me. And he just said he he said he felt very torn because he has a certain idea of what it means to be a man challenged to a fight because of his culture mm-hmm. and his growing up and everything that's been told to him by the media. You know, you look superhero movies of people beating up bad guys and the reality of the situation. And so he said what he did is he didn't fight the guy and then he thought about moving. And then he he was he felt like a coward thinking about moving. Like, was he running away? Yeah, yeah. And uh, just thought it was really interesting because, to you know, there's a very strong argument to me that the absolute best thing and manliest thing you could do is not let your emotions get the best of you, not fight someone over nothing, and then also move to keep your loved one safe because he lives with his girlfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, like that's the messaging he's received made him feel like that's not the manly thing to do. The manly thing to do is stand your ground, do the fight, like. So I just thought it was interesting because I, yeah. I agree with him. I think that what he did makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. And it was just interesting that it made him feel like less of a man. Yeah. Well, we've talked about this, that uh, manliness, being a good citizen, being a good Christian. Uh, Rolo Tomasi would disagree with us, but I, I think these are just mechanisms of control. No, that's not to say that there's not differences between men and women. But the way that we uh, explain and, and uh, this culture of what it is to be a man is to literally influence and control people so that in these situations they behave in and in other situations they behave in uh ways that society is encouraging them to move towards so i've i've felt similarly at at, at different situations of my own life and it's it's whether or not it's the manly thing to do i think the freest thing to do is to be like i don't give a shit what you think i don't give a shit what this girl thinks Mm -hmm. she wants to dump me because of this i like like I like weirdly enough, like that's freedom to go. You guys can perceive this however you want. I don't want to get punched. Yeah. Don't want to go to jail, and now no longer want to live here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I am going to leave and move elsewhere where there are not surrounded by people like this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and is that manly? I don't know or care. You know what I mean? Like put it put it on whatever scale of of well, cowardly or manly or whatever that you want. Yeah. Funny enough, it does that to me does feel like the strongest. Like that shows the most internal strength of character almost just be like, I'm not going to let people's perception of me dictate what I do. Mm-hmm. But it is interestingly not the one that gets uh, glorified necessarily. No, no. That's that's literally why it's the stronger one from yeah, an yeah. internal perception is because you will not receive any glory from that. You have to just enjoy the fact that you don't have a broken nose or and live in a nice neighborhood. Court. You know, like you have to enjoy your own experience and not someone else's reflecting on you mm-hmm. what you mean to them at that point. Why do you think humans care so much about oh, it's, their, it's, their reputations? I think it's very reasonable to say that your reputation was closely connected to your livelihood, your chances of reproductive success. So you think it's a you think it's a just innate in your brain thing let's, that comes from a different time and place. Let's pretend that Sneeko cannot leave the neighborhood oh, no, because I get there's it. 150 I get people, and if he and if he blows it with this chick, nobody else wants to sleep with him because he's a coward and he can't protect them or anyone else. Like yeah, now his just, genes are done. It's just from a, you, you think it's evolutionarily. <laughs> yeah. 
people who didn't care about their reputation in the community didn't procreate. Didn't make it. And so we're just all left caring with something about in our, our brain that cares deeply about our reputation. In a world where we can move cities and people will never know who we are, mm. we, we can literally start over. That was not an option that existed for the majority of the human experience. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. It almost seems like part of personal development is shedding that instinct. Yeah, technology is trans. It's technology has evolved way faster than our brains, instincts, and habits are, and they clearly can be exploited so that you're on TikTok all day, mm -hmm. and they can make you miserable. Whereas finding something novel out in the wild might have been like really good to focus yeah, yeah, on yeah, yeah. And, and play with this thing. Uh, yeah, that's that's a lot of what the challenges of the the quote unquote first world problems that people face are. I have a prehistoric brain in modern times. Yeah. And it just constantly sends me down the wrong path. Now I'm, you know, locked into VR porn constantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, was well, interesting. I actually talked to one of our neighbors who he he's in the tech world. He helps people protect their businesses from hackers. And he was telling me about how uh, social media. We all we everyone talks about how it's dopamine addictive at this and that. But what he was saying, he doesn't hear people talk about a lot, is that it's run by AI, mm -hmm. and they're just totally agnostic to your mental health or happiness. Mm -hmm. They're just chasing profit. And so when they see that what makes people angry and unhappy makes them more money. They just pursue it yeah. like coldly, not even maliciously. They're not trying to hurt you. And so, yeah, it's interesting how your phone becomes this thing that really just pisses you off or leaves you feeling sad just because a, ro a robotic program is trying to maximize wealth. <laughs> creation. Again, but the, the program, which was programmed by us, is we said, make as much money. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, like get as many eyeballs, do this. This is what's good. And, and I... Well, to be fair, I actually would be shocked if like the founder of uh, Instagram uses Instagram often, or if Mark Zuckerberg uses Facebook often. So actually, mm -hmm. the people setting the programs probably don't fall victim to their own programs. He's, but this is the deeper program is consumerism. He wants to grow, grow, grow. He wants to grow, get more, more power, more this, and uh, help the world. And everybody then talks about impact. Once once they can yeah, no longer justify about, why have they we talked about this. I think we've mentioned it uh, briefly. Once you've earned a lot of money, but you're still not satisfied, what I see is very common in the entrepreneurial community is to talk about impact. And then you say, no, it's not that I want to earn more, be more famous or have my ego glorified or have my face and name everywhere. It's that I want to make impact yeah. on people's lives. But if you it's track a nice shield, it's a nice shield to protect from accusations of greed. Or yes. But if you track hunting. what is done by by not all of these people, some of these people is that they don't always pick choices for maximum impact. They pick choices for maximum personal exposure yeah. or maximum financial upside. Yeah. And when choosing between impact and that, uh, some of them do, but many of them choose not impact yeah, <laughs> they yeah. choose uh and sometimes the impact that they make is again it's just like well i've you know i've been seen by 10 billion people it's like well, okay what was the quality of the thing that you showed to them like you yeah, impacted the, their how life. those like, people how positive of an benefit, impact did you yeah. have uh and so this is just something that i'm i'm aware of in, no it's just a funny myself. buzzword that yeah. people try to use to shield themselves from accurate <laughs> accusations mm. of of megalomania yeah yeah what was so where i forget where we were social media <laughs> Oh, just that these that these apps are running themselves, but ultimately we're the, set that. we're the ones who told them make me more money. Yeah, yeah, man. I I constantly we have we have to be on the lookout for this as well. I mean, I feel it because I've felt burnt out of these videos, and at the end of the day, I, I should just not make videos as long as I'm feeling burnt out of doing it. I like this. This is fun, mm. and it doesn't make money. So, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of, if you guys want to donate to the Patreon, yeah. Justin is oh, we're almost to your goal, right? Not quite. We're about halfway there. Halfway. We're halfway. Yeah. So 100% of the Patreon right now just goes to paying Justin. Yeah. So 
that allows him to do the editing, get the guests, come in and set this all up. So, and basically, when his what we're trying to get is is for Justin to be able to focus on the podcast when he's not here in studio with us, which means that we'll get better guests. He'll be able to prep better topics. The edits will be better. We can start coming up with more fun, interesting things for the patrons. Mm -hmm. But right now, because Justin is doing contracted work, he's got other stuff that he has to do, so he can't always be thinking about this. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying. Yeah. To so if you like the podcast, please. Donate to Justin mm -hmm. <laughs> using our Patreon. And it'll help make it better. Yeah, it lets us do more. Cool. You want to do questions? Yep. Speaking of patrons, this is from Andrew, who is a top-tier patron. Ooh. Um, and with the election coming up, he asks, do you think one should vote in their self-interest or in the interest of what they think is best for society as a whole? Ignoring for the moment that the argument that voting for what is best for society as a whole is actually best in the long run for one's self-interest do you think it's moral to support someone who will be good for your personality or for your person for, for you personally, be good for you personally, Got it. but bad, whatever that means for you, for society? An example is my situation. I have a seven figure annual income. So voting in my best interest would be to support whoever is going to lower, lower taxes. However, I think it would be best for society to have universal health care. I feel like I'm in an ethical dilemma here. Mm. Thoughts? So I actually don't think you can remove the fact yeah. that what's best for society is best <laughs> for you. And I'll put it like this. I think if you let wealth gaps exacerbate and you let the safety of certain neighborhoods decline and you let education decline, there will be a revolution and they will come to you in your million dollar mansion and they will burn it down. Um, I know that sounds crazy given that it hasn't happened in America yet years yeah. or so uh, in the US, but it happens all the time across the world. It's happened in the past. And so I actually think you are benefited, especially because if you make a million dollars, and you take home 500 grand or you make a million dollars and you take home 600 grand, it's really not going to make that big of a difference in your life. So the sacrifice mm -hmm. you're making will not be noticed. Uh, but I think you will notice that when society as a whole is going better, there's more innovation from other people that improves your life. The areas you're in are safer and you don't risk losing everything as the inequality becomes untenable. So I think to ignore that part would be uh bad for you selfishly mm, yeah, yeah. so i think selfishly you should do what's best for society yeah i mean you did say this in the question but i will reiterate what ben said which is i don't think you can remove that i, yeah. I it's there are first and second order effects to your best interest and if you're wise which i you must be if you're earning seven figures you figured something out you cannot simply be like well yeah i'm shooting up is really, really fun. So if we ignore the long-term ramifications, is it bad for me? It's like, well, technically it's not, I guess, if you're only counting the heroin high, but if you immediately come down and lose everything, like why would we Why would we remove that from the equation? Mm -hmm. So I think it needs to be baked in, but let's play a game where you live in a universe where that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Revolutions don't happen. People that are downtrodden or whatever stay downtrodden. Do you have an ethical... Uh, what is it, an ethical duty to to vote in the favor of larger groups of people or should you just vote in your own self-interest? Well, people, know, I think if you've listened to other episodes, you know I like the veil of ignorance a lot. So I go what's best for society. Um, mm -hmm. I'm under the impression that I got really lucky that I wasn't beaten by my dad or had drive-by shootings in my neighborhood, that any of my success is predicated on the fact that I was born into a good situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I mostly any gripe I have with taxes or wealth redistribution is just 
how it's spent. But I think mm-hmm. philosophically, yeah, I think I want what's best for society, even if that means I have less wealth because of it. I'll play. I'll I'll just strengthen this a bit. Perhaps the system of voting is set up to be like, look, be selfish. We're just going to count the most votes <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, so I think you can make a very reasonable argument that is just be selfish. Uh, th- that's the whole point of this is for you to state what is best for you. And then we will aggregate that. And you're not a bad person for stating what's best for you. And then in the aggregate, just just don't freak out when you're outvoted. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the problem with that is that what's best for you might be like, look, what if we just killed this 10% of the population and took all of their stuff? Yeah, yeah. And everybody would be like, well, that's best for me. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do think I, I eventually come back to uh, ethically vote incorporate other people into your decision making. This is why we donate to charity water. It it doesn't, them getting water will not in my lifetime have any benefit on Mm -hmm. me or my society to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But it just seems like it's good. And I wish everyone would do it, I Mm -hmm. guess. So I kind of, maybe it's just the golden rule. It's just like, I wish everyone would think more about what's best for society. And I do think even in a voting block, just because that example that I gave, it's no, you, you need to incorporate the minority, uh, the minority group because if you don't then you just have a system that constantly exploits whatever the minority group mm-hmm. that is most exploitable is so yeah i think vote with ethics but also uh, voting goes beyond tax rates and mm-hmm. you know so oh, it's, yeah, yeah. so it's it's not simply no no you have to do what's best for society that doesn't mean you have to do what gets you taxed the most it means you have mm-hmm. to uh, i don't you have to do anything i would suggest voting for who you think is best for america for generations even, mm-hmm. like who, not just for the next four years. And and the last thing that I'll say with regards to this is I, I'm going to get shit. I'm, I'm not planning on voting. I don't want either candidate. Uh, I think that this you have to vote idea is, uh, one, it's, it's one of those things that people believe because it's repeated 10,000 times and it's socially shamed if you don't. But I think upon investigation, if you replace vote with other things like donate $5 to charity or donate $100 to charity or volunteer at your local organization. Volunteer for two hours. I think you get better outcomes in the world. So, (laughs) so for some, so it's a, it's a shame to me that people spend hours and hours and hours and hours thinking about which candidate they will vote for, you know, and then not doing these other things. Mm -hmm. Everything that we do comes at the expense of everything else that we're not doing. And I don't want that to weigh anybody down, but I think that I can, rather than educate myself on Biden's policies and Trump's policies and this, I could just probably help more by taking that time and doing a lot of other things, uh, which is part of the reason that I'm not voting. And part of it is I don't even know who I would uh, prefer or want or predict or, and and, and then lastly, what I'll say is the whole voting game is, or the whole campaign game is structured around deception. It's structured around faking you that I'm going to do this. I'm going to shut Guantanamo Bay. I'm going to not do this. It's, it's all as we know, bullshit. Yeah, yeah. So now you have to wade through people who are bullshitting you through news organizations who then put an extra filter of bullshit on top of that in order to cast a vote, which may or may not be best in the long mm-hmm. run with hours and hours. It's like, I, I can find more helpful uses of my time sure. than that. Uh, so that's that's where I land on this whole particular thing. Um, it is a bummer. You, I wish that there, what a cool system it would be if candidates had to commit while campaigning to what they would try to get done. And mm-hmm. so if Trump puts on their 
two term term limits for senators. And he's like, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just saying it because I'm allowed to say stuff. Yeah. But I'm putting it on the board and mm-hmm. the board is like legally binding. They have to pursue this to the best of their ability. It wouldn't work because people would just find loopholes, but it'd be. It would be such a better system. It's not even socially binding, though. It's not even like people don't even get mad at you. Like when you don't shut down Guantanamo Bay, nobody really no, cares. Term limits. Yeah, Trump, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. That's one of the things. I mean, so one of the things that Trump said he was going to do that I thought if he can do this, it would be really cool is setting up a system where government employees aren't so incentivized to pander to lobbyists, pander to their base. You could get more Eisenhower-esque behavior yeah, yeah, yeah. if you knew you were leaving in eight years, but it just didn't happen. Um, in sum, and I'm going to go out on a farther limb here. I think that the vote, 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 vote push. There's a there's a bit of uh, let's trot out two people who are wildly similar and make you feel like you're being involved, bread and circus going on with that, as opposed to what people aren't saying is uh, things that just make more genuine change that take more genuine effort. Um, I'm not saying the voting is bad. Democracy is better than totalitarianism. I wonder if that's true. In swing states, it would be my only question. Like we live in California, yeah. you don't have to vote. I was in Florida in, in t- the year two thousand. I think that would be a big. That could be very important. My vote. That's what I'm saying. That's <laughs> not what I'm saying. It's like also. I think I just want to clarify. And, and the electoral college. Yeah, yeah. California is going to go blue, so you not voting, is not going to have a massive. But impact, furthermore, right? me not spending the time to educate myself, I could just use that for other valuable. No, things. what I'm saying though is like if you're LeBron James and you have people who will listen mm-hmm. who have never voted before but who might vote if you make it a priority to say it a bunch mm-hmm. and they live in swing states i actually do wonder if he could have an impact and i wonder if him and 10 of his most influence like if he gets kevin hart and Dwayne Wade, i do i actually do think there are individuals who can impact an election sure and i, I just I think isn't it always whoever shows up most is tends to be who wins I like be, people I, don't change yeah, their minds I'm, I'm but not, i'm not totally certain i think i mean my impression is that trump won mostly because his base came out and voted in larger numbers. Obama won because like, it's not that they're changing minds in the middle. So from that perspective, I actually do think to the extent people feel strongly about it, uh, there are people who can have a big impact by getting voters in swing states out sure. in mass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, and then I, I'm, I don't want to shit too much on voting. So let's just move on. Okay. <laughs> you just think all the candidates are the same. No, it's like, okay, great. Now we have a bunch of people who haven't done the research out there voting in mask. Woohoo. Or, or they're going to vote for the guy that I said because I'm really good at basketball. Woo. Like, yeah, is yeah. That, oh, wow. I've done a great deed. Like, it, I just, <laughs> I'm not, not trying to be mean to LeBron or anyone personally. Yeah. Uh, I think well, no, this is my, so I mean, I, <laughs> again, then who writes the, who writes the test becomes an issue. But my thing has been if you have to take a test to drive, why don't you just take a test to own a gun, take a test to vote? Like, why don't we just have tests in more areas than just driving a car? Uh, because then what you exclude are people who are not very smart from having a say in government, which you're saying is what you want. No, I didn't say that with <laughs> words. No, you, you exclude people who uh, lack education, lack time. That's the other thing that you don't want to exclude for sure. You don't want to exclude people that work three jobs and don't have time for tests or time. To, you know, like correct those those are important they could get educated so like let's say you follow ben shapiro or you follow cnn and the test is just going to be what are the candidates opinions on a given issue you could get synthesized information from those people Mm -hmm. they would just have to give you like an accurate sense of what the synthesized position is of both parties Mm -hmm. that's the kind of test i don't think you need to know when the u.s is founded well what if you don't 
why why can't I vote for someone, for instance, because they're a Christian? I don't know their opinions, but he, he goes to church on Sunday. Like you're, I just want a Christian. That seems worse to me. That's that's all. It's literally just my my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, my opinion. I, I, I would vote, not advocate for a test. Personally. If you're going to vote for who's going to make policy, you should know what their policy opinions are. You presume that the most important thing that a president does is break policy, which isn't mm-hmm. which is a presumption. I mean, they also set the moral standard of of the thing. They also uh, have a first lady who has a bunch of fun, <laughs> fun like sure. new school programs. Yeah, and yeah. Stuff like I, that. No, you're, that's that's accurate. I think yeah. of, I think a president in terms of a person making decisions for the country, policy so decisions based on one that. of the things that did occur to me as I was reading Eisenhower is well, you get eight years and then the next guy comes in and reverses it. Yeah, right. One of the most powerful things that you do is set an example for the people who grow up and idolize you. Mm-hmm. And that has legs because there's for Obama or Eisenhower or Trump or anybody, there's a there's a group of little kids mm-hmm. that look at that person for four to eight years and go like, that's where I'm headed. And yeah. I actually think that might be the most profound impact that mm-hmm. a president has. Yeah, it's that's definitely something I'm considering in this election. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I agree with that. Next is, I'm very inspired by your self-development videos and think that philosophy is fundamental to attaining true success. With that, what do you think is the biggest obstacle teenagers meet today when it comes to accomplishing their goals and achieving their dreams? I don't know. Um, I'm not, so so everything that I do is going to be a guess based on being 33 and knowing zero teenagers. <laughs> so uh, I, I will recall what it was like 20 years ago for me and guess uh, I imagine there's a there's a couple of things, and these are the ones that were true for me. The first is that if you're in the school system, this is no knock. I have family members but and, and lots of people who are doing it, but your teachers are not equipping you for the world that you're moving into. They're equipping you for the world that they came from, which is 20 years ago or even more. Um, so that's something that's tough. Is it, it, the, the mantra for me was, got to go to college, got to go to good college, got to go to good college. I think college, with the exception of very few of the top schools, is rapidly decreasing in the value that it provides to your life, the education that you get. And I was going to say, though, if you if you actually had gone to a top 10 college, it might make a huge financial difference in your life. Yes, I think that there's I think that there's a top tier of colleges yeah. that have maintained their economic value. I think that there's uh, Almost all the others have dropped tremendously in economic value, and it's a, it's a crapshoot in terms of uh, education, in terms of like really what is the value of the oh, knowledge. I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. I just think that there is there is still like an upper echelon yep. of colleges where it's like this is just a good investment in terms of like it's two hundred grand in, and then it's millions of dollars out. And I, and I think that that's true going forward, but I think I think it's still true. If you're Actually, I guess I don't Harvard. know if you're 15. Yeah. If you're 20, if you're 21 and at that college today, I know that's still true. Yeah. It's good good for you to go to Stanford. Good for you to hang out with those kids. If you chose yeah. to go to Stanford four years ago, that was a financially great decision, yeah. even though it cost 200 grand. I guess you're saying he's 15. Who knows? Hypothetically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That means in six years he graduates from Stanford. That's a bet. It's a bet I would make yeah. if it were my kid. But the broader point is that your teachers, uh, despite their best intentions, are not equipping you for the future. Mm-hmm. They're equipping you for the past. And that's one of the very tough things. So they also just like your permanent record. They, they just make up stuff to control you yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, and so, yeah, the advice that you get, I think also sometimes if you don't have good teachers, which there's no guarantee, uh, is just wrong. Uh, there was you, the, some of the career advice that we got was so ridiculous mm-hmm. from, from the guidance counselors. We got advice 
about you got to join the key club is to show that you're a well-rounded student. And it's like, if I had just been like building my own video games, which is what I wanted to do <laughs> and just been like, no, find a hobby and pursue the, the ever living daylight out of it, that would have been fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. so anyway, bad advice from people around you is, is I think a huge problem. I imagine, well, I think in general, following advice from people that aren't living the life you want. It's yeah. just something I would say to avoid. So like if you're taking advice from a guidance counselor, that's great if you want to be a high school guidance counselor. Yeah, or if you want to be a teacher, which is a totally admirable but thing to do. if you want to be the next Elon Musk, the best thing you can do is probably read his biographies. Mm -hmm. Or Bill Gates or whoever. So that's one is the advice that is, uh, it's, it's a very narrow band of advice coming from teachers and yeah. guidance counselors, and that will teach you how to become a teacher or a guidance counselor yeah. if my, that is your dream. My advice is to self-teach. You know, I think I learned a lot. All of I went to business school and all of my business learnings have actually come afterwards from books and courses mm -hmm. and things like that. So I think if you're a teenager and you want to be successful at anything, like do it yeah. yourself. Yeah. You know, I think that's honestly, if you want to be a basketball player, it's probably not relying on your basketball high school coach is not going to be what's get you there. Yeah. So uh, no matter what you're trying to learn, I think to the extent you can be a someone that can identify high quality instructors and learn from them, that's that's a skill I would focus on. Yeah. My mom has gotten counselor, so she's going to yell at me for all that. I'm just saying. <laughs> but I told her I would come in and talk to her students. I said, you're, you're not going to like what I have to say. Well, uh, I, yeah, <laughs> this is a total tangent. But my, my PE firm, I, I go back. I'm still friends with the private equity guys. And they asked me to t talk to the associates. And I said, are you sure, sure about you this? Want that? And they said, yeah. I was like, OK, I'm just you want me to just be honest. They're like, yeah. So I went up and I said, hey, most of you shouldn't be in private equity. A couple mm. of you are passionate about this and you're going to be successful. And yeah. a lot of you are pursuing this for prestige and money this is wrong for you and mm -hmm. I wouldn't try to do it. And I think you won't be good at it and you won't be happy and get out. Mm -hmm. And afterwards I was like, so are we cool. And they're <laughs> like, yeah, I, told, I think that was great. Like only a couple of these guys should stick around yeah. and it's we're we're not benefited if someone tries to slog through a painful job for money. Interesting. So let's just keep the ones that are fit. I was like, oh, <laughs> cool. We're still friends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, and then I imagine the, to finish this particular question, one of the other things that is very challenging is that your life is now, I mean, the most split between digital and in-person of any generation, obviously, but it's almost like an, I don't know whether it's 50-50 or if it's tilted towards one side, but now it's Zoom classes mm -hmm. and the amount of interaction that goes on after school, in the comments, et cetera, you are charting completely uncharted territory mm -hmm. in terms of how to deal with bullying and how to ask someone out on a date and how to manage those two worlds, which are, which are very, very different. And no one can give you effective advice. I'm not prepared to, I have no idea what it's like to just constantly be connected to mm -hmm. my classmates. So that's, I do not envy teenagers today. You said it earlier, though. It's cliche advice, but I think pursuing your passions like now you don't want to make yeah. your passion for video games or whatever it might be overtake your ability to do well scholastically. I think mm -hmm. the system set up so that good grades help and I would pr pursue them personally. Mm -hmm. um, but charisma, that was just the thing you and I were trying to do to get better with our friends and better with dating. And yep. there was there was no business in sight when we started or for years as we pursued it. Yeah. And Steve Jobs studied calligraphy because he liked it. And that worked out well for him. And people people who could code in the early days did not realize that it was going to be the most lucrative thing you could do is start a tech company. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're a teenager, like, yeah, run down your passions. I think that's going to work out for you. I literally just talked to a guy today who was a college basketball player or yesterday. His college basketball player got hurt, released a course and has a, a very nice income from it because mm -hmm. he just 
got deep into the weeds of what makes a good basketball shooter. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's one thing I would say is that um, you never know what's going to be the thing that lets you be successful. But I think when you pursue your passions, it tends to work out well, or at least arm you to then take that knowledge into the working world mm-hmm. the way Steve Jobs did with calligraphy. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good one, too. Like, try to learn from people who are doing what you want to do and try to pursue things that don't immediately seem like they might tied to financial success, but that you're truly passionate about. I think it's a pretty good formula. Dope. What else? So cliche. <laughs> Next is, I'm a big fan of the concept of the friendship triangle. In brief, it concludes lasting and meaningful friendships have three sides, the first of which is positivity, followed by consistency, and deepened through vulnerability. Do you <laughs> feel that these three sides aptly encap- encapsulate what it takes to form fulfilling friendships? And further, how would you advise and encourage people who have heavily quarantined to pursue, maintain, and develop friendships despite having the social rug of their life pulled out from under them. So sorry, positivity, positivity yeah. consistency, and vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. It's not my experience. I think it's missing values. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's the thing that's brought me to all my closest friends is our values. And and, and consistency is for me, I'm terrible at it. So, but it it, it could be subbed out. Uh, I think of my some of my the people that I am happiest to see high school friends, friends live in different countries, values is what. Well, the number one thing I did, the number one thing I did to make the closest friends that I have today, there were two things, I guess. One was just going to college. But then the second was uh, wearing it on my sleeve that I cared about personal development. Yeah. And being being loud and proud in a time when that was kind of poo pooed as like lame. Mm -hmm. And that led me to making so many friendships that stood the test of time because we cared about the same things. And I think that's an important thing that's not in the triangle. It's the thing to me. Positivity is nice. Values is the number one thing, at least in my experience. So especially if you can go out there, we were talking about charisma, writing about charisma. We are considering a move to Austin, Texas, as we talked about, to potentially live in the same building as friends that we haven't lived with since Brazil Mm -hmm. five, six years ago, but we would hang out with all the time. Yeah. Consistency fell off the map entirely. Yeah. yeah. I've seen these guys once a year for the last five years, but the reason they even moved to Brazil with us in the first place was because we had the same values, entrepreneurship, Mm -hmm. self-development, caring about relationships with other people. So that led them to quit their jobs, their very prestigious jobs to come move with us to Brazil. Now we've been separate living our lives and now we might go live and see each other every single day. And I think it's because of the core values. Yeah. So, okay. How do you? How do? What is? What is the actionable step? It is to uh, be vocal, speak them, pursue them, make your uh, try to earn money from your values. Try mm-hmm. to find hobbies that are that show your values. Even if, like, to be clear, a value can be basketball. Like, if playing basketball on the weekends. Yeah, can I have be friendships something- that are that are largely rely on the fact that we both surf. Yeah, you could be a foodie and you could be someone who just likes to go out to nice restaurants and you'll connect with people that like to go to those yeah, restaurants. Yeah, so I guess values and interests. And I'd say those are separate, but both mm-hmm. super, super important. Yes, and and really, yeah, and our interest is what has connected us to people for a long time. So uh, I would remove consistency personally. Doesn't seem nearly as important, though of course it's nice to have and it's it's kind of a result of the other things. I was going to say, actually, I think the vulnerability is a result. And now maybe that's not, if you struggle with being vulnerable with people, I would say work on that in your life. But to me, I've never tried to put vulnerability into a friendship to strengthen it. it you've, actually, never, you've never struggled with it and to the same degree I think other people do. Vulnerability? Oh, maybe that's not true. But but you're, you, for instance, 
you went out on a limb, left your job, admitted to people that you weren't happy there. You know what I mean? Like that. I that think is, of vulnerability is like sharing like your childhood stuff, hmm. which you didn't do with me until we were friends for 13 years, 15 years. Uh, I suspect, but I did share with you who I had a crush on, who mm -hmm. I dissed, that I was sad about it, that my breakup upset me. So I think that you're considering vulnerability a subset of what the actual larger circle might okay, be. Okay, maybe. I, I haven't read the book, so I actually don't know what they- what Neither they have I, but, but I just know that some people think it would be vulnerable to be like, I had a crush on her and she didn't want to date me and now I'm really upset about it, which is Got like, it. that was, no, no, <laughs> that no, was our whole that. friendship. Yeah, 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 you need that. <laughs> you definitely need that. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that that's, that's a key piece. But yeah, you don't necessarily have to trade childhood trauma stories to make a friendship yeah. last. You just have to- Guess, Yeah, I don't know the definition of vulnerability here, but- Knowing what you care deeply about, which is kind of the value thing. What I would add, yeah, I guess we can leave the other side, so just make it a pentagon, but I would yeah. add <laughs> values and, and interests, and those are different, but both. I would bet that I could pick, if I knew everyone's values and interests, I could pick who you're gonna be friends with in five years from your high school mm -hmm. friend group and who you're gonna grow apart from. Super easy, and, and quite frankly, the grow apart is 100% interest and values. I mean, I watched, what transformed my friend group? When I became interested in girls and other of my friends didn't, Ben and I became best friends, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Like when when certain friends of mine became interested in stable careers and I was interested in entrepreneurship, total radical mm -hmm. reorganization of my friend group. And you know some of those guys for a decade plus and yeah. you'd seen them every day because they were your neighbors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's that's really seems to be what has driven it, at least in my experience. Cool. Thank you guys so much for watching. We hope that you enjoyed this. We've got more questions. How many more, Justin? Uh, nine today. Nine today, potentially nine more on our Patreon. They're available at every single level of joining. So if you want to check those questions out, Justin has them up usually a few days after the live podcast. Within a week. Within a week. Also, right, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're a patron, you get your question answered. Still, and that yep, might not right? last forever. Might, yeah, no problems. But today, if you join mm -hmm. and you're a patron, guaranteed we will answer your question. If you write it in the YouTube comments, you're at the whim of Justin. So yeah. <laughs> that's another uh, thing we try to do to incentivize you guys to help us pay Justin. Cool. That's it. Peace, guys. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.